Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timmy Three, and we're back with a brand new episode. And I know the last episode we did was a Batman commentary track, and there are going to be more commentaries in the future, but right now we're going back to our traditional review, and the title says Scarface 1983, because I had had the feeling I just wanted to rewatch it recently, and I know there's a few people, part of the Real Fans for Real Movies uh, podcast fan group, that are just as much as fans of this movie as I am, and I said, hey, would you guys like to talk about that? And luckily, they obliged me to come on. Now, the first co-host, he is, I had just realized they're both got podcasts and that I've been guests on and everything. So I just realized how small our group is that we're kind of incestuous. Like, you want to be on my show? Sure, you can be on my show. And the first host, he is the the host of Dark Tower Radio, Mr. Jeremy Lloyd. How are you doing, Jeremy? Hey, thanks for having me back on. I'm trying to remember. I don't, I can't remember the last anything goes I was on. I know I've been on Please Rewind a couple times, but uh, I can't remember which was the last Anything Goes episode I was on. Was it you, Andy, and I doing Christine? That sounds about right. It may be. Jeez. Well, I'm just like... I, I just kind of felt like I opened the door of the TARDIS while we're mid-going through time and just peer through <laughs> the time spectrum. It's like, ah! And I just closed the door really quickly because they just the inevitability just like, crushed to me. And they're like, nope, 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 not doing that. Now, the other person that's on the podcast cackling along to my existential crisis, he is the host of Superhero Stress, Mr. Philip Barker. How you doing, Philip? My name is Tony Montana. No, I, 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 I totally botched that. No. How you doing, Tim? Thanks for having me back on. I think I, at the last episode I was on Anything Goes, I believe it was you and I talking Zack Snyder's original five-movie arc for his films, Universe, and DC Films. Yes, and I believe that was back in April, which is almost three months ago now. Oh, my. Wow. Where did the time go? I don't know. It's going to be August soon, and I'm like, um, okay. All right, life. Did- Okay, did Barry Allen break the timeline again? Um, it's the only uh, explanation of what's going on right now. Otherwise, I'm just like, I, I literally just, I just thought to myself, like, yeah, we're just going to write off this year. We're just going to, all the plans and goals I had, like, you know what, we can just, we just migrate it over into another year, and then we should be fine. Fingers crossed right there. You mean well, like, to, you mean, to, sorry, sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was, I was just going to say, uh, to quote a tweet that I saw the other day, uh, I, I'm not measuring time in days or weeks anymore. It's just how many times uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenet gets delayed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, now it's indefinitely. <laughs> Which is for the best. I'm glad you did not push it. Like, nope. Like, uh, I was wondering, like, am I going to have to jerry-rig a hazmat suit to go see this movie? Like, I may have to, but luckily that doesn't have to, that's not going to be the case right now. If you really want to watch this movie, you may have a chance at seeing it overseas in, in the UK and Europe. Apparently, that's it might still open up there. Well, I don't know. Uh, well, that'd be fine too. But like, if I could go to the goddamn UK, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking want that to. Now, that was a goal of mine this year was to go to the UK, but no. Thanks, COVID. Uh, yeah. That is that is the only thing getting any thank yous here lately is COVID. I feel like that's just the the immediate response to everything is thanks COVID. 
Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's let's not dwell on right now that. So let's let's try to be positive here. Let's turn back the clocks to 1983. So we put on our sports jackets and our loafers, and we're gonna be cruising down Miami Beach because we're talking about Scarface 1983. So let's jump into our review of it right now. <laughs> Okay, now, Jeremy, what is your history with this movie? Uh, well, since it came out in 1983, I can safely say I did not see it in the theater. Um, I'm sure our friend Guy Milks probably did, but uh, not me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh this is one I I had always you know was curious about because it's as we'll get into it I mean it's so in our pop culture zeitgeist I mean even you know back when I was younger it was just one of those movies like The Godfather you know it's just even if you haven't seen it you you know of it you know so uh, but I didn't get around to seeing it I think till I was I think in my early twenties. Um, one of my friends uh, let me borrow his uh, copy and it was. Uh, uh, wait for it. It was one of those double cassette uh, copies that, unless you were born in '83 or you're very hipster, you probably have no idea what those are or ever seen one. But movies that cracked the three hour mark back in the day, they used to put them on like a two cassette set. Um, I think Titanic was one that they did that with. Uh, Scarface is one. I mean, like there's probably a dozen others but uh yeah i remember getting this big box set of scarface and watching it over uh, a whole day just sitting down and watching it and i uh i just became immediately hooked with it um i saw this one before uh the godfather trilogy uh so it was kind of my first real exposure to like al pacino gangster um so uh it was just one it just really stuck with me i don't know if it was the you know the visual style of it the setting uh the over the top larger than life characters that it had it just just really stuck with me and i've just been a huge fan of it ever since um and i completely understand why this movie is such a pop culture cornerstone in our society Awesome. That just made, that made me think of two things. One, I just had a funny idea of a visual, like giving kids uh, today the WV, the double VHS package and seeing it being too big for them. It's unwieldy. Like, how do I deal with this thing right here? Um, as I feel like it weighed like 500 pounds. And two, I'm imagining, I'm recontextualizing a scene from Godfather Part 2 but the, the subject of it is fighting for the gangster fandom in Jeremy's heart and it's is uh, Fredo talking to Michael? He's like, uh, Scarface, I'm your older brother. Uh, I was, I was here first, but I was stepped over. I'm smart. <laughs> I can do things. Uh, well, you you can imagine my re- reaction when I watch this, and then I go back and watch the Godfather movies. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, it, it's just too 
completely different performances from Pacino in those in those two franchises. So, um, yeah, it's it was it was a uh, pretty eye opening to see Pacino in the Godfather movies compared to this movie. Right. I mean, like because he's for the most part in the Godfather movies, he's far more soft spoken and only has outbursts every so often in those movies. But more so in the third one when he's near the end of his life. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> and, well, well, that's after, uh, I believe that was after Scent of a Woman, wasn't it? So he that was kind of the character he played in everything after that. It was right around that time, at least. And then he was... <laughs> then, if you want to do, like, later, la- later <laughs> latter-day Pacino impressions, you got to drop your jaw a little bit into, like, oh. And, like, as if, like, it's, like, spilling out of you right there. Like, oh. So... Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. <laughs> and, and, and then, like, you think of, like, Dog Day Afternoon or the early Godfathers movies where Pacino's very nasally. And he's like, yeah. Attica, Attica! And, which is, that's my favorite Pacino performance is in Dog Day Afternoon. And Celine Lament will come back up later on. That's not just a random tangent right there. Uh, like, I don't know what happened to his voice. Like, did he just smoke too many cigarettes and cigars and it just destroyed his voice over the years? I do not know. I think it was this movie that we're getting ready to talk about. You know, <laughs> I may, yeah, you, I may have just answered, I think you're right. I, think it's, I may have just answered my own question there, unintentionally. Uh, what about you, Philip? Your history with uh, Scarface. So... For my memory, Scarface was the movie, for whatever reason, the community that I grew up in, the the parents of my friends. This was the movie that you do not show your kids. This was the movie that all of us kids knew about, but we weren't allowed to watch for, well, obvious reasons now that seeing it after, as an adult. Um, I remember watching it as a kid, but seeing it now as an adult after seeing Pacino, you know, in things like Godfather 1 and 2. I got to say, the first time re-watching it, however long ago I did, before we, we finally hammered down the date to do this, uh, I, it's by far one of the most jarring movies I've watched in a long time. But at the same time, I, I just remember watching it and hitting you guys up like, why does this remind me so much of Vice City, the Grand Theft Auto video game? And I was like, oh, because Vice City is directly influenced by this video game. So that makes a lot of sense. Um. As far as Pacino's performance goes, like, love it, hate it, you cannot deny this is hands down a performance for the books because I don't ever foresee anyone doing anything remotely close to what Pacino does here as Tony Montana. I think you're right there. I mean, they, like, the, the joke, well, not even a joke, but, like, they've been teasing a, a remake for years, and... I'm just wondering, like, how do you do that? Like, unless you do kind of like how this was, because this is technically a remake. This is a remake mm-hmm. of, of a, I think it was 1932 film with the same name, directed by Howard Hawks, starring Paul Muni. Unless mm-hmm. you do something akin to that, where you have the, the bones of it, but then going in a completely different direction, there's no way to top this performance and the kind of grand uh, nature of this movie. Yeah, and I mean, I think they've, they've, uh, I think, um, 50 Cent was attached at one time. They were talking about doing kind of a urban inner city, you know, with a, you know, African American type drug lord or something. They were going to go with that approach. I just, I remember there was rumors that 50 Cent was attached at some point. Um, mm-hmm. 
but I haven't heard anything about it in a long time. But yeah, you're right. I, you know, much like with this one, I think you would have to take a different approach and just a different setting. And I think that's a smart way to do it. Um, but at the same time, just the way this one completely overshadowed the original. I mean, even when I got uh, my Scarface uh, box set, it actually came with the original movie. And I had never, I didn't even know that that existed at that point in my life. So, you know, it just tells you how much this version here has just become like the one that everybody knows as Scarface. So I, it would be tough, I think, for them to sell another Scarface remake without it being immediately compared to this one, regardless of the approach they take. Yeah, and like I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now that according to May 14, 2020, uh, the directing duties is to Luca Gudagino, who's most famous recently, he did the Suspiria remake. Mm. And the script is being written by the Coen brothers. I remember hearing about that. I don't remember how long ago, but I remember hearing that the Coen brothers had decided, or they were going to crack a new Scarface script for mo- for a modern time, a modern rendition of the Scar script. Scarface story, I guess, would be the best way to say it. Well, being a Coen brothers fan, I'm trying to picture what that looks like. I mean, I guess if they're just writing it and not directing it, I guess it could be not what I'm used to with them, but... I just watched the Ballad of Buster Scruggs the other night, and I'm still trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to figure that one out after I watched that. So I watched Hail Caesar the other night, so I get it. <laughs> Hail Caesar is a lot of fun, and yeah, it is. Uh, it is. yeah. <laughs> and I feel bad for the guy who eventually would play Han Solo in that movie because, like, he's literally just given result direction by Ray Fiennes the entire time. Like, that's not helping his performance whatsoever. <laughs> That's not how you direct <laughs> actors. That's how you really you make them feel terrible. Um, and Buster Scruggs, like that's something I think you need at least two viewings because the first time you don't expect what the hell it is, and uh-huh. and like somebody broke it down, like oh it's the different like somebody broke down like you break the stories up into like three parts. Is it the three different eras of Coen Brothers storytelling? And like the uh-huh. earliest stuff mm-hmm. is more their um, bombastic like raising Arizona. Um, kind of style, and then later on, it's like, oh, this is when things get a little more serious with Fargo, and um, like, oh, Brother Arthur. But then in the latter half of it, it's like, oh, this is when they become a little more. I don't want to say serious, but more reflective, where you have things like a serious man or No Country for Old Men, kind of like, especially the carriage story, which is all about death, and mm-hmm. which I think. At first, I'm like, oh, this is just, like this is just a really boring one, a segment. But like by the end of it, I absolutely adored that uh, segment of, of the uh, movie. Well, you're talking to the guy who's seen The Big Lebowski more times than I can count, so uh, <laughs> I understand having to watch Coen Brother movies more than one time to fully grasp the the genius of a lot of them. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and like the fact that they've done writing gigs before, like they did a rewrite of Bridge of Spies for Spielberg a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So they're not; it's not new for them to come in and like, oh no, we're gonna do a script for a movie. Like they'll take writing gigs while they're in between projects, which I think is really commendable and keeps them uh, their storytelling skills sharp. And my personal history with Scarface. 
I this much like Philip, this is one of those movies that your parents don't want you to see because of the explicit nature of it. Whether it be the violence or most certainly the language, because you don't want your uh, kid calling his friends or his parents uh, fucking cockroaches uh, because of this movie. <laughs> That's just like the tip of the iceberg of the expletive nature and content that is just littered throughout the majority of this movie. I know. Like, there, there's, there's one insult thrown Montana's way towards the end that I'm not going to repeat on, on any airway, but it's it's bad. Yeah, it, it, it insults in both English and Spanish, so yeah. you do not want the uh, those being uh, thrown around uh, willy-nilly, as it were. And so I think I saw this. This must have been on before AMC became a hub for prime time, not prime time, but like prestige television. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh they would show movies most of the time because they're the American movie classics. And Scarface was on the rotation often. It was like this and much like how Jeremy said, like The Godfather. Like, I kind of feel like I feel like a program director who wants to like, I don't want to do anything this weekend. Let's program the, the three Godfathers movies on repeat and we'll call it a weekend so I can go, I can go away. <laughs> um, and Scarface is a similar way that it was always on. And it wasn't until I think I rented this from the library in the two VHS copies and saw it on my own that even though I really wasn't supposed to, I finally saw it and I was blown away by it. I mean, I was just enraptured by the cover, the black and white cover of uh, Tony mm. Montana with like Al Pacino, Scarface, like the, the red um, coloring popping off the poster. And it, it was so funny. Do you know like how uh you and a significant other will have a movie like like that's your movie like that's the movie that that it, that your couple is kind of like you guys bond so much about mm-hmm. and a no. re- <laughs> <laughs> well fine i'll fuck myself while i'm at it i don't know what a significant other is jeremy does but i don't i was the, i was kind of leaving that vague to like whether it be a boyfriend girlfriend or whatever you or a a friend with benefits, something like that, what have you, some sort of relationship that you have, um, that a girlfriend of mine at the time and I, like, this was our movie. This is the movie that we bonded really hard over, <laughs> which I know is a kind of a strange thing because you think like couples like, Oh, it's a romantic comedy or, or just a comedy. That's what you guys would like say like, Oh no, we're going to put this on because this was something that we can kind of chillax to, whether it be clue or the notebook or, Bring it on, what have you. For us, it was Scarface. Yeah, I mean, for I mean, this one, I don't think this one's really one for me and my wife, but I know me and my brothers. I mean, once I saw it, I exposed it to them, um, and they became huge fans of it. It was just, we all had Scarface posters in our rooms at one point. I mean, we played the video game. We obviously got hooked on Vice City because it reminded us of this movie. I mean... Yeah, I mean it's it's a big part of uh in my family for sure. I mean, I I have a I what's the best way I can say this? The way this movie makes me feel now is just it's it's I'm kind of of two minds about it. I can appreciate everything that went into making this movie, the performances, the cinematography I think is actually pretty pretty stellar, but there's just something jarring about the 
the score at times for me that has always felt off. Like there are moments where it does feel like a movie taking place in the eighties and it's got very upbeat music to reflect that. But then there are other times where it just feels like it's trying to just steal music from a horror movie and it just mm-hmm. feels really off. So I don't know. Like the, the, I, I've had, a, I'm not really a, a gangster film person. I, I appreciate them. Like I like, uh, Godfather one, two, I can take two, give or take three. I'm not really, I'm not one way or the other. Uh, the most recent one I actually watched was Capone directed by Trank, Josh Trank. He directed, uh, Tom Hardy in the role of Al Capone. That's, you know, to sidestep it a little bit. It was, it was good, but nothing like this, like this movie to me, like, I don't, I don't, I don't recall a movie in memory that, that shows the descent of such a, not troubled because troubled is definitely not the right word here, but just a, a person just hell bent on being that powerful and what power really does drive somebody to do. And I think that's probably definitely one of the strongest things about it on top of, you know, like Tim said, the imagery that, that, that poster, that poster is unrecognizable. You know, you see that you, you automatically know what it's in reference to Pacino, Scarface and the red lettering, the black, the white, all of it. It's you don't see that and not think of the movie. Most definitely. And like to continue on what I was saying before that um, so much to the point that like her and I were such fans of this movie that they did a fathom events years ago of Scarface. I don't know if it was fathom events, it was just my local like AMC was doing showing of it. And we're like, oh, we're going to go because we love going to the movie theater. Um, and so we ended up going. And we said, was we, we got our tickets walking in. We turned to each other and asked, do we want concession? We stood there for a moment and said, nah, I guess not. So we go into the movie. We're like 15, like we're about 10 to 15 minutes in. We're kind of like, kind of wish we got concession. And we both kind of agreed like, yeah, we probably should. So I, like I said, I'll, I'll be right back. I'm going to go to the concession stand. It's like in the middle of the afternoon. It's not a busy time. So I go, and I go to the concession stand, and I place my order. But while my order is being made, uh, I think I got, like, curly fries and something like that. Well, something else, like something, not just popcorn, something like something that had to be made. The One of the guys behind the concession stand counter is flirting with his coworker to the point that he is negligent of the food that's going on and burns my food and has to remake it again. So I end up standing there for nearly 15 minutes, missing the entire chainsaw set piece. That's oh. a shame. That's a shame. Because that's a fun sequence. I know. And to hear that in a movie theater sound system, like that's what I was like. It was one of the things I was the highlights I was looking for. So I've seen. 95% of the movie and on the big screen. There's only 5% I missed, and it's because of some guy who thought he had game and did not. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that would have been an uh, opportunity for you to go Tony Montana on somebody. Well, if I gunned him down right there, I, 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 like, I think I would have to get in the car and leave because even like Tony Montana has balls enough to blow somebody away in the middle of a, a busy street in broad daylight. However, he gets into his convertible and peels the fuck out of there. I want to say they didn't finish the movie, and I didn't want to end up like John Dillinger getting killed in a movie theater. So that's why I didn't do it. 
<laughs> you could have just been like, "What the fuck? You fuck my food up." <laughs> you could have went Montana. I mean, I, I, you know, internally I was, be. but I was like, "No, no, no, let me remain cool." Because he did apologize, and I'm like, at least you did that. At least you did that. And I don't know. Maybe he threw an extra sauce in there. I don't know. But yeah. So like, by the time I got back to like the theater, uh. Montana's already dancing with uh, Elvira, like, at, at the Babylon Club, so I missed a good portion of the movie. Oh, the Babylon Club. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a part of me... Go, Go on. Ahead. No, no, not to oh, I, was, I, I was just going to say, there's a part of me that's convinced that this is the movie that landed at... Oh, I almost said Anne Hathaway, excuse me. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. I mean, because damn, she looks amazing in this movie. She does, and she's absolutely radiant in this movie. But how this movie came about, it was because of Martin Bregman, the producer of this movie, like was up in the middle of the night one night, one evening and watching Scarface at like three o'clock, and he's like, "Hey, you know what? We should remake this." And he was talking with Al Pacino, who he had worked with, because uh, he had produced Dog Day Afternoon, directed by Sidney Lumet, and commission a remake of Scarface to happen with Lamette and Al Pacino attached. And when they found the writer in Oliver Stone, uh, he Oliver Stone decided to do some research by going down to Dade County uh, in Miami and Florida to talk to people part of the Justice Department and what was going on with the drug wars because this is not like it is, this, the ideas and the things that happened here didn't come out of out of nowhere. There's a great documentary, I hope it's still on Netflix, called The Cocaine Cowboys, talking about the real-life crime spree that was going on in Florida because of cocaine. And mm-hmm. so he also went down to Bolivia, uh, Olive Stone, to do more research to people of the criminal element right there. And he was enjoying himself and abiding while he was there. And he's like, you know what, I gotta get out of here. And so he went to the Paris to sober up and get, kick his cocaine habit in order to write the movie. Um, once he returned with the script, uh, Sidney Lumet was not really a fan of it. And he wanted to be more of a political angle, angle of it because he wanted to be more about the coming from Cuba and like his struggles with, uh, with, uh, coming to an American society. And they said like, no, no, this is the kind of direction we want to go. So Sidney Lumet bows out, Brian De Palma comes in and they, Began filming took place between November of 1982 and May of 1983, and even though they were supposed to shoot a lot more in Florida, they got uh, threats by the Cuban community because they thought it was a pro-Castro, anti-Cuban movie, and just kind of thought it had an agenda against them and started to threaten people in the production. So they ended up leaving Florida, going back to Los Angeles to shoot most of it, and only did a few external shots in Florida to pepper throughout the movie. And it eventually would come out in December 9th, 1983 produced on a budget between 20, 23 and 37 and a half million <clears throat> would go on to make 63 million worldwide and mostly negative reviews. There are a few people who enjoyed it, like Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Uh, Lennon Malton did not like the movie. A, Apparently, Kurt Vonnegut and John Irving, the, the famous authors, walked out during the chainsaw sequence because they thought it was too violent. Mm. And it would go on to kind of change pop culture afterwards. And it became, even though like it was a success, it def- definitely became a cult film. 
And so the movie opens up in 1980. The Cuban refugee, uh, Tony Montana, is part of the Mario Boat Lift, which was a boat lift of getting people who want to leave Cuba for the United States. And so Cashier said, like, all right, you want to leave, but now you got to take all so many of my prisoners, even though it's only supposed to be a couple thousand people being extradited, like tens of thousands are now in Florida. And we're introduced to Al Pacino's Tony Montana, who's got this bravado about him. He doesn't take shit from anybody. So, Jeremy, your feelings of how this movie opens up. Well, yeah, I, uh, you know, just to go back to, you know, what we were talking about, how this kind of takes the Scarface at point a modern period. You know, I love the whole Cuban angle because, I, you know, so many... So many gangster movies we see usually involve, you know, the Italian mafia in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, I mean, obviously we all enjoy those if you're a fan of the, the genre. But I, I really liked how this one took this different approach. And we got, you know, this story about, a you know, uh, an immigrant coming, you know, not from Italy or not having any ties to, you know, what we're used to seeing with, with gangster movies. And they tied it to this, you know, thing that was actually going on at that time. You know, the whole thing with the Castro refugees and him essentially sneaking people into our country that he felt were undesirables in his country. And we got flooded with all these, you know, criminals and things. And, um, you know, so right away, you know, (laughs) that, uh, the, um, I guess, what would you call it? The immigration service, I guess, are, are on to this. And, um, you know, we meet Tony Montana and, you know, right off the bat, you know, Pacino's chewing scenery, you know, in his first scene, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't hold it, pull any punches at all. Um, you know, it's a great introduction to the character, I think, in my opinion. And, um, you know, I love the whole back and forth between him and the immigration people about how he got his scar and, um, you know, literally, you know, showing, you know, a scar on his face, which is which is cool. Nice. And Philip, you know, number one, the intercutting of what feels like documentary footage, but I don't think it might be. It might not be. I'm not 100 percent on that. But the intercutting of that between the opening credits leading up to Pacino's, you know, introduction as Tony Montana, where he's having it out with the immigration. It's something like, I just remember seeing it recently and just like watching it. Now I had no memory, really no recollection of watching it back then. So watching it back, watching it now felt like watching it fresh for the first time. So watching him kind of like, kind of lie through his teeth here a little bit to, to get through immigration <laughs> was per, it's pretty funny. Like Jeremy said, you know, he's chewing scenery up left and right. It's, it, 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 I gotta say, I think I pointed this out to you guys too. I said, it, it, it's astonishing to me that he keeps his accent virtually the same. And he, he manages to squeak out the word, you know, he, sque- he squeaks out the word fuck without moving his lips. It's astonishing. <laughs> when I know he got like, um, you know, we'll probably touch on a little more as we go in the movie, but his accent, I, I know, got a lot of criticism from uh, actual Cubans, I think, in a behind-the-scenes or making-of documentary I watched. But, um, you know, and I, I get that argument, but at the same time, I mean, this is a character, I mean, he's, like I said, he's larger than life, so I don't have a problem with his accent just being over the top, uh, because I think it's one of the things that make the character so memorable. 
Yeah, I mean, he based his his accent on the cinematographer John A. Alonzo, who is best known for obviously this as well as Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like he told him to speak Spanish to me, like to speak Spanish to me the entire time. Don't talk to me in English, and just kind of based his pattern based on him. But I can understand where it could be thought of as like it's a little over the top and it's a little silly that it doesn't seem as genuine and could be have issues with it because I don't know if it's just because it's so imitatable throughout the years mm-hmm. because so many people have done Tony Montana impressions uh, since this movie came out. Well, and it's it's. I mean, obviously, this is looking at it in hindsight because we know how Al Pacino is now, but it's like part of me is like, well, how much of that is Al Pacino going over the top with an accent and how much of it is just that's Al Pacino? You know, if Al Pacino's doing a Spanish accent, that's what he sounds like, you know? So it's it's hard. It's I'd see it both ways. I, I completely sympathize and understand people who would have a problem with it, especially if you're of Cuban descent. Uh, but at the same time, with it being a fictional movie, and this character is literally over the top in everything that he does, from the clothes he wears to the way he walks and everything, I mean, it just, it for me, it doesn't bother me because it's just part of the character and what makes the character so fun and memorable. Yeah, I, I, can, I totally can see that. I mean, I can get that uppity about Tom Cruise's accent in... Um... Oh, what's Last that? Samurai? No, 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 no. At least no. he's playing an American man. I forget what the hell the movie is. It's him, it's Nicole Kidman, not Eyes Wide Shut, but they're Irish immigrants during the Oklahoma land rush. Oh, Far and Away. Far and Away. Oh. Or, yeah. or Tommy Lee Jones' accent in Blown Away. Um, <laughs> very open South Irish accents in that. Um, so, yeah, I understand where people are coming from with that. And my feelings in the opening here is, like, I like Philip said, I, I do enjoy the documentary footage that we have opening here that we have punctuated with the uh, the opening credits. And then when, you, when we're introduced to this character, we're not introduced into a big crane shot or wide establishing shot. We're introduced to him in a close-up, and we dolly 360 degrees around the room, uh, a trademark of Brian De Palma. He loves to do a 360 track around a table um which you like notice in a lot of his movies and it's something that quentin tarantino loves doing as well because he's a huge fan of brian de palma well we also get that nice uh introduction to that you know score that philip was talking about earlier you know with these opening kind of the opening crawl i guess you would call it uh, that i think for me at least has just become iconic uh whenever i hear that music you know it's Oh yeah, so recognizable as Scarface. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's some kind of '80s like synthesizer, or I'm not sure what that. I mean, I'm sure I knew at some point when I was really into the movie, but I can't remember what they used to make that score. But it's, it's just so recognizable with this movie. Yeah, Jojo Marauder was a kind of like known like. Uh, well, like the, he has like a nickname. What was it? Uh, I wrote it down here. Oh, like he's a dub the father of disco, and like he's known for a lot of electronic dance music, and so it's very heavy on the sense. And mm-hmm. and I I understand where Philip's coming from. Where like we have like the moments where it's like it's like the bing and like the notes building and building, 
and then you have those notes there's like boom 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 where it's like he's just hitting the same note over and over again we're gonna understand mm-hmm. for some people not being a fan of you know yeah, I, I can see it being a love-hate relationship for sure <clears throat> I'm I, I'm watching it right now. I got I got I got it on the on the tube right now, and it's just uh, I can't I can't stop looking at Stephen Bauer because I did it, like I told you guys before we started recording. It dawned on me who he is to me now because I, I was watching this movie like where have I seen this guy before? Who who plays Manny Rivera? I'm like where have I seen him before? Where have I seen him before? And sure enough, as soon as Tim mentioned Breaking Bad before we started recording, I was like oh my god, wait a minute! I looked it up. He's Don Eladio from Breaking Bad. It's like, wow, that makes a lot of sense because Don Eladio in Breaking Bad is essentially kind of like Frank and Scarface in certain ways in this movie. Kind of the head honcho drug king- kingpin, basically. That's that's who Don Eladio is in Breaking Bad. So it's funny to see where you get he gets his start, I guess would be the best way to say it. <laughs> right, and then we also... He's not the only um, Breaking Bad alum that's in this movie. Uh, Mark Margolis, who is known as the Shadow in this movie, but he plays Don Hector in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hector Salamanca. Yeah, you're right. I just, if only there was like a bell in this movie or somehow, like, then that would have just been too perfect <laughs> right there. But, well, as you mentioned, Manny, like, so we, after Tony is trying to successfully try to get his way into America. They don't believe his shtick and send him to Freedom Town, which is kind of like a shanty town in the in law in downtown Miami. Miami. Yeah. yeah, and he we meet Manny played by Stephen Bauer, who also couldn't get into America. So they're kind of just kind of stuck there and wait until hopefully that we'll be able to get out of here one day. And that's when Manny finds out, like, hey, we can get out of here with green cards if we do this one thing for. A, a drug dealer named Frank Lopez, and all I have to do is kill a guy named Rabanga, who killed Mr. Lopez's brother in Cuba years ago. And so, when a riot breaks out at this uh, at Freedom Town, this is when they use the opportunity to kill Rabanga. And I love this suspenseful sequence of them slowly closing in on him until he's eventually killed. Uh, Jeremy, how do you feel about this little set piece? Yeah, I mean it's 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 it really sets up some stuff with the characters. Um, you know, you get this whole uh, obviously this is has ties to Cuba, so there is this whole communist uh, connection. You know, and you, we start to see the seeds of you know Tony's character and and Manny's character. You know, kind of being anti-communist, um, which would explain a lot if you watch the movie and see where their characters go and how much they're into you know just the whole decadence and you know the american dream you know quote unquote you know um you know coming from you know cuba you know which you know became a communist regime you know a lot of that you know self-made you know becoming wealthy and stuff that's not something that is is practiced in communist countries you know it's so them coming to America, you know, you could understand, you know, they have this lust for that, you know, that American dream, I guess, you know, and becoming this huge wealthy, 
you know, self-made person. So, um, and you, you get to see that they're, they're willing to do whatever it takes to, uh, to accomplish that. And, you know, this Rabanga guy is, I guess, I think is what I remember. He's like a communist or he's a communist sympathizer or something. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, the, they pretty much go, they pretty much take him out like a raptor, uh, pack of raptors in a way. You know, it's uh, it's a good scene, and like you said, with the whole cinematography and stuff, that I, it's a really good scene. Nice. What are you, Philip? Rabenga. <laughs> yeah. So, like like you mentioned that as you were saying, you know, this is the breakout sequence of the little Havana, not little Havana, but like the 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 where they're at. I, I it's it's escaping me right now. I'm having a brain fart of where they're at in downtown Miami. The um the makeshift structures, the um, immigration camps, I guess the best, best thing to call it. Yes. Yes. So when that, when that when those riots break out uh, and Jeremy, I believe Rabenga was actually one of Fidel's Castro's officials. And mm. then after a while, Castro eventually cast him off. So <laughs> like Jeremy and Tim have mentioned, you, the, you know, it, it really is a nice showcase of watching, getting that taste of how far, you know, Montana is willing to go to prove that he's all for becoming a self-made man in America, even though it's not quite registering to him that he's killing an, he, not really killing an innocent man, but you know, he's, he's taking a life. He's going to, you know, work for this drug dealer. He's going to, you know, do things that normal people like Jeremy, Tim and myself probably wouldn't ever consider doing on a regular basis. It's a very twisted ideology, you know, yes. uh, <laughs> You know, he what he sees is the prize, but the way he intends to get there is, you know, he doesn't his morals are completely different. And that's something that comes back later in the movie when you meet his mother yeah. and his sister. It's it's definitely that conflict of morals. Yeah. Right. Because we, we would see how he was raised and how he turned out. Mm hmm. Um, and then you see like the kind of conflict that's also between like his sister's morals that we kind of get later on. But I love this scene because I love like the big crane shots showing just the, the utter chaos that's ensuing right there. I always enjoyed Varenga like desperately trying to hold on to his wire brim glasses, uh, while all <laughs> the, the, all the insanity is going on around him. And like how Philip said before, when Stephen Bauer gets Rabanga's attention by bellowing out his name, like, Rabanga! And they're saying Libeta over and over again. And it, it is a pure Hitchcock scene where we see where he has to go. We have a POV shot and, like, tracking shots with him. And just like, hopefully he can get out of here. If he gets out of there, he'll be safe. He'll be get out of there, he'll be safe. He opens the door to get away from his so-called assassins. But that's when Montana shows up and shanks him. And... Right, it is like he ha he has the American dream. We all have the American dream in one form or another. It just depends on what you're willing to do in order to get it. And this just illustrates he's willing to do anything in order to get it. Hundred percent, yeah. And so we, Rebecca is dead. There, that uh, Manny, uh, <clears throat> uh, Montana, and their friend, she, uh, their oh, their. Uh, Angel uh, is given green cards, and they're like, all right, we're about to join the American Society, and they can't wait to start the, living the American dream. However, Manny and Tony become dishwashers. Dishwashers. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Like the, the 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 what leads up to how Tony and Manny, you know, eventually st- decide to stop being dishwashers and how Omar comes into play. Just this whole sequence just makes me laugh because it, it it's another showcase of of Montana just kind of just dropping trout and showing how big his balls are, for lack of a better phrase, you know. He's not afraid of anyone or anything, and he's going to do whatever he wants to get what he wants. Right. I mean, like, Manny, like, like they've been doing this for, like I guess, like a month at that point there, and they can't stand it. And when they get an offer from Omar to, like, hey, uh, take these few, a few kilos of cocaine, go to these Colombians, pay them, if it, like, take this money, Buy the kilos if it's good from the Columbians and come back. And if you do, you get five grand. And Montana's just being a little kind of aggro about it. And Manny's trying to be the kind of work both angles. Like, hey, hey, we can do this. No problem and everything. And it just shows the immediate rivalry between Omar and Montana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you start to get you know, glimpses of that short fuse that Montana has, um, you know, compared to Manny. And that's something that, you know, you'll, I think there's a nice payoff to that, you know, later on in the movie is when you realize how important Manny is to Montana, uh, because, you know, with Montana's short fuse, I don't think he would have made it as far as he does without Manny, in my opinion. No, I think you're absolutely right. And the fact that Montana's, doesn't even realize that. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. realize it until the end, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was a day late and a dollar short when he finally realizes it. <laughs> wow. Uh, or a couple million short. No, 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 I, I do not know numbers. Um, <laughs> but, like, how do you feel about this, Jeremy, about the them being dishwashers and being kind of disenfranchised with the being the bottom of the rung of American society? Well, I think it just showcases Montana's twisted view of, you know, what he thinks the American dream is or, you know, what he should be, you know, able to accomplish or entitled to with America. You know, he's got this he gets tempted with the easy money, the quick money, you know, and there's a lot of people even today that that's how you fall into, you know, the drug business and things like that. It's, you know, the. Yeah, they're dishwashers. We're all making chuckles about it because it's it's funny to that scene is just really funny to see them two doing it. But you know, it's it's honest work. It's an honest living. You know, and then they kind of rub their noses at that because that's not they don't want to work hard. They want they're looking for that easy way to the top to get there as quick as as they can. And that's why you know they're more than willing to. Go in and do a drug deal for with some Colombians with no regard to the fact that you know they literally got green cards and they're already um, you know meddling around in something that could get them kicked out of the country you know quicker than they got in. Yeah, I mean it's to the point where they feel like they're owed because I made it to America, I deserve to be a millionaire. And I, I like, yeah, we're making we're making light of the fact that they're they scoff the idea of being dishwashers, but a lot of people see that as honest living and able to make a living and raise a family that way. But that's just not in Montana's cards. He does not want to do that. He believes he's owed more, but he's willing to work for it, and he does that by agreeing to this job here and going. And so it's Manny, it's Montana, it is Chichi and their friend Angel to go and check this out. 
And so Angel and Montana go up to the apartment where the the Colombians are uh, positioned in downtown South Beach, Miami. And while Manny and Chi-Chi stay in the car to make sure everything's fine, they have the drugs with they have the money with them. They and so Montana's going to go see if the drugs are real. If they're good, we'll pay him, and then we'll we'll be able to go on their merry way. However, it's a double cross. A double cross of all kinds of double cross. That's for sure. And it involves a chainsaw and turning up the TV. And it's just some really, really wicked back and forth watching, you know, you, you watch t- Tony watch Angel get just cut by that. Like, oh, this this whole sequence doesn't necessarily make me jump out of my skin but it, it's tense and it's tense in all the right ways it needs to be tense and it also again it's 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 a funny little callback to grand theft auto vice city or vice versa vice city calls back to this this hotel specifically this little havana hotel it's it's you can feel the tension as soon as montana walks into that into that room i mean you could just cut the tension with a knife i mean you can already you can already tell that there's something not right here or something's not gonna you know the drug dealer's not gonna play ball the right way and you know this is just <laughs> i think it's i've never been involved with one but you, you hear police officers talk about you know drug deals that gone bad like this is a perfect portrait of i think that that's how that happens it's just you can sense the distrust between the two people and mm-hmm. you know just both are trigger happy, you know, and I've always been curious uh, because we never really find out. But was this something that was set up by Omar or was this something the Colombians did on their own because they didn't trust Montana? Like, I've always wondered that because you get the sense that Omar had the feeling that they weren't going to make it out of there. You know, they weren't going to be able to make this deal. They were both going to get killed trying to do this deal. So because when he, Montana does actually call Omar to tell him, like, he seems, like, very surprised that he actually made it out of there. So I've always been curious, like, where the double cross came from. If it was just strictly a drug deal gone bad between the dealer and the buyer, or was it something bigger? I don't know. I think... I feel like it it feels like something Omar would do because like you mentioned earlier there's that automatic rivalry between Montana and Omar from the moment they set eyes on each other. So it very well could have been Omar who enhanced the double cross or enacted the double cross or it just very well could have been the Cubans just trying to get richer. I'm honestly yeah. not too sure. Uh, it, it it does kind of feel Omar does kind of sound a little surprised after you know he's after Tony tells him you know I got I have the I have the drugs and I got I have the yayo and I got the money. Uh-huh. Still super funny the way he says yayo. <laughs> got the yayo. Chichi Chichi grab the yayo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was like a running joke amongst like friends of mine who enjoy this movie. Like whenever we had to grab something like that, we would just say it's like Chichi grab the yayo. Uh, literally the only movie I've ever heard cocaine referred to as yayo. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I also love the El Camino that they drive into because again, it 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 just, it just brings back them Grand Theft Auto memories. And I also love how Manny's just, just trying to swing it with whatever babe walks by. <laughs> 
Uh, you oh, you, you got to give him a, a, an A for effort right there and just shooting his shot right there. Oh, yeah. Well, funny, you, we mentioned Vice City um, on here a couple times. There's actually a – I found it at one point. I mean, it's been years since I played that game. But you can actually find this this hotel in the Vice City uh, world, and you can actually go up to this room and see the uh, the shower where the chainsaw incident happened. You can um, find a chainsaw in it. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of little Easter eggs in Vice City with Scarface, as we've alluded to already. But yeah, there's also a mansion that looks like Tony's mansion in the game um, that you can go visit. Matter of fact, the shirt Tony Montana's wearing in this sequence, the very sequence that's going down with the chainsaw, one of the dealers in Vice City wears the same exact T-shirt. I don't remember which one it is, but one of the big drug dealers wears one just like Tony Montana. Yeah, it is like there's so many like callbacks to this movie specifically in Vice City. And I'm pretty sure I played Vice City prior to seeing this movie. And yeah, like there's like a secret hotel in there where you can find a chainsaw in a bloody bathroom. And even in the Scarface game, which is like a pseudo sequel to this movie, uh, eventually you go back to this hotel and uh, guess what? Another drug deal goes awry there. Who would have thunk? <laughs> Um, I, I, Which I'd highly recommend people to check out if you're able to. It was it's a really cool game if you're a fan of the movie. That game has my favorite game over screen ever. I can't remember what how what had it had it look. All it, it every time you died, all it would say in big red letters, "You fucked up." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing uh every time my my cousin would purposely die just to watch me react to seeing that come on the screen because i just lose it and laugh every single time that's amazing um yeah i i really enjoy the set piece here and i never thought of it that way jeremy it's like was is a setup from omar from the beginning i've never thought about that yeah, he just seems really surprised when Tony calls him. And then you, you, I mean, we'll get to it, you know, we get into the next scene, but, you know, there's this, the camera pans to Omar when Frank talks about, you know, if people would just do business the right way, there'd be no fuck-ups. And you get this shot of Omar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I just always kind of put that together. It's like, well, you know, was he involved with that? But then at the same time, it's like, well, why would he try to... He literally just met Tony, so why would he be trying to set him up? But um, it just... There's there's just some little nuggets there, here and there, that make me think that he had something to do with it for some reason. I mean... Like... Go on, Bill. I, I was just going to say, like Frank tells Tony a bit later on, don't ever underestimate the other guy's greed. <laughs> He's not wrong. I mean... It's so funny. Like, it's F. F Murray Abraham. Like, you should not trust him if he shows up in your movie. Like, he tries to kill Tony here. He does kill Mozart at one point. And he betrays Arnold Mm -hmm. Schwarzenegger in Last Action Hero. He should not be a character you trust whenever he shows up in the movie. Uh, he played a great Hannibal Lecter spoof in uh, Loaded Weapon as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that. It's been years since I've seen Loaded Weapon. Um, but like, <clears throat> my final thoughts on the set piece here. I, I love the that camera goes from like the window of the hotel room 
cranes down to see what Manny's doing and, and all the way back. So you know the geography is, what's going on there. And I do question, like, how loud can that TV go that it can drown out the sound of a chainsaw in a bathroom with, with marble that amplifies sound? Cutting yeah. through bone and flesh, nonetheless, too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if I, like, if I was going to do, like, a rewrite of the scene, like, here, I would have had a neighbor show up to the door and, and complicate things because all of a sudden they just walk in on a, a double murder that's going on right there. Um, but I love how, like, it's all on Al Pacino's face what, what happens to Angel right here. Like, we see blood, yes, but we don't see bone or limbs getting cut off right there. It's all from his reaction and sound design, and it makes it far more horrific than if you just saw chainsaws cutting through people. One well, wasn't this the scene that they were getting the it was it the NC seventeen rating at first, and they wanted to get it down to an R, and they were telling them that they had to do something with the chainsaw scene, but then I guess the Palma ended up resubmitting it without even changing anything or something, and it got a rated R. I, I feel like there was something about that on the making. He talked about like the chainsaw scene, and I guess I guess what I'm getting at is it kind of tells you how well the scene works because it feels like it's more gruesome than it actually is. I mean, kind of harking back to like the Chainsaw Massacre. That movie's not very gory, but because of the way it's shot and the way the scenes are set up, like it feels more gory than it actually is. Yeah, like, the mm-hmm. only time you see Chainsaw actually going to flesh is when. Leatherface takes a a monkey wrench to the face and it falls on his leg momentarily. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like so, De Palma had to submit this movie like four times to the MPAA, and like each time the MPAA still gave him the X rating and had new reasons to do it. And finally, he got to the point. The reason what broke the camel's back when it came to De Palma was they thought the clown in the club scene got shot too many times, and he thought this is ridiculous, <laughs> and so. DePaulo went to his friends who worked in the press and said, like, hey, this is a First Amendment issue, and they're trying to silence me. And a whole lot of negative noise started being directed towards the NPAA. So the NPAA eventually conceded to his demands. And so, hey, this is, like, this is an X-rating. They're all X-rating. So he put everything back in. So there's no, like, an unrated cut out there. What we got is what he wanted to be in the movie. Mm. Wow. That's surprising. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about the NPAA, there's a documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated, and it goes into the entire history and like the process of a movie getting uh, its rating and who really does the rating system and the kind of arguably antiquated system that they do to justify the ratings. And It's really fascinating and very informative. I'll have to check that out on top of the making of this movie because I, I had not looked at, at it. So I have no idea what De Palma's mindset was like making this or how any of that transpired. So I'll, I'll be interested to check that out. Definitely. I mean, I think, like, even if they don't have, like, a physical copy of it, I think, like, the making of it has been put onto a couple parts on YouTube. And so Tony meets his boss, uh, Frank Lopez, played by Robert Loja. And... Um. Uh, and also meet Elvira, played uh, by Michelle Pfeiffer, as they go to the Babylon Club, a very swanky and happening place in Miami, 
where Frank wants the Tony to be his, uh, be like his number one guy. A number one guy. I didn't mean to do that, but it just kind of slipped out that way. Um, and so, what was it? Omar and Frank kind of have feelings about Tony and Manny, as well as Manny and Tony have feelings about Frank and Omar, saying like, ah, those guys are soft. We could run this business. And while Omar thinks of Montana as a fucking peasant, in his words... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> harsh, but it's what he says, and and so they said like, ah, we can manipulate him and keep him going. And so the, the, even from like their very first meeting, like there's already kind of a divisiveness between the two groups right there. How do you feel about this, Jeremy? I mean, <laughs> Frank Lopez. I mean, this is there's scenes with him and Pacino. You can't tell who's getting the most scenery in their mouth because he is just, <laughs> especially at the uh, Babylon club where he's going over the, uh, the rules uh, to the game. I mean, he is just, uh, whatever he was drinking, I need some of that. <laughs> I mean, he was just having a great time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it just further plants the seeds that it's never enough for Tony. You know, I mean, he just got out of a dishwashing gig. He, you know, impressed this, you know, well-to-be drug dealer, I guess, whatever you want to call him. And he's going to be, like, kind of his number one guy. And Tony's already trying to figure out ways to to step over him. You know, it's it's not enough for him. And that's it's going to be the running theme throughout this movie is, like, you know, greed and how much is enough, you know, and... At least from the Tony character, it's never enough, you know. So yeah, I mean, you already you already start planting the seeds of deception, um, you know, with Tony and Frank, and you know, you already get the impression that uh, this isn't going to be a band that's together very long. How about you, Philip? So the contrast of the two sequences when we first meet uh, Frank and he interacts with Tony and Manny after their big blowout at the little Havana, you know, it's very calm. They're, they're, you know, it's formal. It's very formal. They're making, you know, nice, but then pardon me, when they go to the club, it's very lively. It's colorful. It's wild. You don't really know what's going to go on. And like, like you guys mentioned, Frank's given Tony the business, basically like, you know, number one, don't underestimate the other guy's greed. And then they, you know, him and Michelle Pfeiffer both tell him, don't get high on your own supply, which definitely comes into play later. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, the, the, there's just a lot of, I, again, I keep just going back to the cinematography. I, I, these two sequences for me really just showcase it a lot for me. Like I said, you know, between being very calm and state with the, the, the formality of them being introduced to each other to how fast and, fast-paced and colorful and vibrant this sequence is with them, you know, actually talking at the table and how, you know, Montana's kind of like eyeballing Elvira, but obviously Frank and Omar have very different intentions with what they're trying to accomplish. You can just kind of see everyone's hand as if they were playing a poker game, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is curious, and I love how you bring up this, the cinematography, especially at the Babylon Club, is because during the pre-production, um, De Palma goes to John A. Lonzo and says, like, hey, how do you feel about mirrors? 
And mm. Alonzo's like, oh, I don't mind mirrors as long as there's only like a few. And he's like, oh, okay. Uh, because we have a lot and I like to shoot multiple cameras. So this might be a tad tough because there's panels on panels on panels on panels of mirrors in the Babylon Club. And imagine like two, three cameras set up with their own crews and not trying to get them or the lights in the shot must have been kind of a pain in the ass for Alonzo and his crew. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're right. But I, I love the look of this place because it like it just, it's like a hyped up disco and everything, and like the music's blaring, everybody's having a good time. Um, and I, I love like what were you saying before, Jeremy? Like like who's trying to eat more scenery here? Pacino or Loja, and I love the line delivery for Robert Loja when he's talking about the rules of the game. Don't underestimate the other guy's greed. Ha 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 ha. And I'm just like, I feel like Tony right there. He kind of retches back right there, like, oh, I was not expecting that. All right, all right. Uh, yeah, kudos for Pacino to be able to keep a straight face as, <laughs> as Loja's literally laughing and spitting in his face as he's screaming at him. <laughs> well now they're both kind of huddled around you know omar and and Lorcia. they're both huddled around pacino and they're just you know like hey it, it's really that 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 essence of like you know you're ours now we own you not necessarily in the government kind of way but the the, the really scary way you probably wouldn't want to be owned and i'm not talking about prison no i mean like they probably were that close because in a club like that you probably have to be that close in order to hear each other um if they're just blasting new wave at that level, but like you're right, like this him like laughing and spitting in his face, like I didn't know I need a face guard. I'm gonna have to go to the club tonight. <laughs> um, and uh, El when he eventually goes to dance with Elvira, like Michelle Fire's got her very, it's got her, she's got her one two step going on right there, and Pachino's just bopping up and down like his shoes have springs in them. <laughs> Oh, I love her line to him later on. I don't fuck the hell. <laughs> like, oh my god, it is ridiculous. I want to know if there's got to be somebody out there who's probably used the pickup line that Montana says to Elvira here, like, you have a look in your eye, like, you have not been fucked in a year. Like, there's got to be somebody who's dumb enough to say that to a woman or a man and it's like, I hope to God you were slapped in the face. Unfortunately, I'd be willing to bet it's worked more times than it's not. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe I'm doing in it wrong. That, in the last it, five it, years, in that, probably. In that setting, I, I could see it working. I'm just just saying. Yeah, you're probably uh, right. And, um, and so three months later, they're kind of having success and everything. Uh, <laughs> Manny... Just, discovers, quote-unquote, the perfect way to pick up American women is to mouth uh, kind of lingus towards a woman. And <laughs> that, is the, that is the cleanest way I could say that. And I love Pichino's reaction. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, why are you sticking your tongue at me? Like, I showed her to grab that. Like, he, like with tongs. And so Manny <laughs> decides to use that on a woman and gets slapped in the face, predictably. Um, but also this is when they they're at the pickup Elvira just to wait for El, uh, for Frank to get off doing whatever he's doing. And, but this is when we're starting to, to bury the seeds that 
that Beltane really has feelings for Elvira, and he's willing to, eh, Frank, maybe not that big of a deal, that I, I can kind of just, that you belong to me, like, you should be with me and not with Frank. How do you feel about this, Jeremy? Like, this kind of escalation in their relationship. Yeah, it's, you know, you you know, with the whole thing with Elvira and Frank and, you know, later on when we meet uh, Sosa, I mean, you just, uh, Tony is not afraid of anybody, uh, which is kind of his Achilles heel, in my opinion. Um, you know, he, he has no fear at all for anybody or, uh, you know, their concerns or anything. So, you know, messing around with the boss's lady, I mean, it's, and, you know, even later on, like, he, he he doesn't care at all. Like, he, he doesn't see anything wrong with it. Um, and it's just, yeah, just further example of this character and him giving, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, just zero fucks about what anybody thinks, you know. And uh, unfortunately, he... <laughs> He follows that mantra a little too too much, and it ends up biting him in the ass later on. So, yeah. What about you, Philip? I'm gonna just echo everything Jeremy just said because Tony Montana's ego is probably as big as his big brass balls. Because that dude is just <laughs> not afraid. Like like Jeremy said, he he has zero fucks to give about anything, almost anything. I mean, if you if you count his family, yeah. But outside of that, no. No. Nah. Tony Montana doesn't give a shit about much of anything or anyone. And he that's why he that's why he he's so quick to call Frank soft. He straight up the first thing he said, that guy's soft. That's his first opinion of Frank after seeing him. Like that guy's soft. Biggest drug dealer in Miami right now. That guy's soft. Like wow. That dude does have some balls. Yeah, you have to wonder, like, his, you know, obviously he seems to have no respect for anybody, you know, and it's, which is something that's kind of weird later on when we do find out he does have a line that he doesn't cross, uh, which, you know, is, I think, adds another layer to the character. But yeah, I mean, as the movie goes along, you're just like, man, this guy, he doesn't care. He'll do whatever it takes. You know, and then until we get to that point where you do find out, like, oh, he does have a line that he won't cross. It's kind of surprising, to say the least, that he does have a line that he won't cross. Yeah, that he has a odd sense of morality to him that, like, he's willing to massacre an entire group of people if he has to. But if it comes to women and children, he will not cross that line. It is, but it's also, it is a chink in his armor, which the bad guys eventually exploit later on. Um, but yeah, it is something here. Like, I, I enjoy the fact that while Pachino is very aggressive in his, his, his flirtation. Exploits. Yeah, with, with his flirtation towards <laughs> Elvira right there. But like, he he has a, a comedic sense about it. Like he is not all that. Like he's not like true like gallows and rapey and everything like that. It's like uh, like it's not like that. But like he's like all right, fine. Like you're not really into me or like that. But I can still make you laugh. And he puts on her hat while they're behind the wheel of his car. Like 
like that like his line like would you kiss me if i wore the hat and she's like no i would not playtime's over she looks at him she can't even keep a straight face when he's got that hat i'm like okay <laughs> that tr- that is really charming right there um and it's something like if it was not there i think it would really hurt the movie if it was just it would be too um to, i say like is too sincere or just too depraved of anything or too depraved of enjoyment um but like he does have a softer side because we're introduced to his mother and uh, his sister Gina, played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantino. Mastrantino. Wow, I, I totally butchered her last name. It's um, a mouthful, dude. Yeah, it is. It is. It's tough. And where he wants to kind of flaunt that he's a big success in Miami, but his mother sees right through him, and his sister is like enamored with him. And so, Jeremy, how do you feel like this little interaction here when he tries to show that he's a a big man and everything like that, but his mother just sees him as a petulant child? Well, before I get into my opinion of that, I, I want to quickly mention uh, the actress that plays his sister. People may remember her or may not remember her. She played Maid Marian in uh, Prince of Thieves, which is something I always forget about until I, you know rewatch Prince of Thieves. I'm like, oh, that's Tony's sister from Scarface. You know I'm gonna have to rewatch Prince of Thieves. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen that, so I'm gonna have to take your word on it. Like I always think of her when I think of her, I think of this in the Abyss. Yeah, she was yeah, she was also in the Abyss as well, yeah. Uh but yeah, she plays Maid Marion in Prince of Thieves. Uh but uh, yeah, in regards to this scene, you know, it's up until this point, we haven't seen anybody, I mean, other than Omar, that have really had the, the guts to really stand up to Tony and, you know, to see at least stand up to him and get a reaction out of him that's not, you know, just aggressive and, you know, him just kind of biting back at them and to see his mother kind of put him in his place and him just, you know, kind of cower in a way, you know, just kind of not react the way we're used to Tony reacting to that kind of insult. Uh, it was, it was a really good moment. And, you know, this is, you know, I was going to mention it in the last scene, but you know, this, this character, he works because, you know, he, he could easily be a character that you don't like. And by the end of the movie, you you have no respect for him whatsoever. But he walks like this fine line, and it's you know credit to the the writing and maybe the performance. Like you said, Tim, like the character has a soft side, but you know even all the people that he kills in this movie. I mean, other than the people that he kills, that ends up coming back to haunt him. I mean, he this isn't a guy, a character that really kills innocent people for you know per se you know he doesn't kill a bunch of innocent people so through this whole journey you have to kind of be on tony's side in some way and it's it's really does a good job of of doing that where you are kind of regardless of what he's doing like you're still kind of rooting for him like he's kind of this he's a great anti-hero character um and, you know, him meeting his mom and his sister, like, that's, like, more that you can kind of put on his his better side, you know what I mean? Where you, you know, it, it introduces, you know, a sister, you know, and you're going to see him, you know, later on in the movie where he has 
feelings for his sister where he cares about her a lot. And, you know, it's, but there's also that great contrast between him and his mom and their morals and stuff like we talked about earlier that, that come back to later on. So Jeremy's in favor of mindless murder. That's what he's saying right here. Like, <laughs> they're not innocent. Kill them all. That's the vibe I got out of that, that speech. <laughs> well, you, it, you, you just put you just put Tony Montana in the same exact camp as Frank Castle. You understand that, right? <laughs> well, it, it's just one of those things. It's like, I guess for me, like, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Like, when you see Tony killing these people, there's only one person that he kills later in the movie where you're just like, oh, you done fucked up, Tony. You shouldn't have done that. Now, like. And you see it on his face when he does it that he realized he fucked up. Um, where you actually feel it, you know, that he, he killed somebody that he shouldn't have killed. When he's killing these guys in the hotel that double-crossed him on a drug deal, or later on in the climax where all these guys are coming in to take him down, I mean, you're rooting for Tony, even in those... Every time I watch the climax, I'm always rooting for Tony. Um, even though I know how it ends, but it's just... it. I just think the character does walk a very, and I'm talking, it's a very fine line, you know, because this is a movie that has a, a runtime of like three hours. It's like 250 it, almost. If if you're not rooting for this character at all in this movie, you, you wouldn't have stuck around is what I'm getting at. You know, you would have, hey, it's just like Goodfellas. Goodfellas is kind of the same way. Like regardless of what the guys do, you love Ray Liotta's character, Robert De Niro, and especially Joe Pesci. I mean, you just love to watch these guys, even though you know they're horrible people and they do horrible things. Like, they walk that line where you you can't look away. Like, you're just enamored with the character. And I think Tony Montana falls into that category. I have to agree. But how do you feel, Phil, with... Um... <clears throat> Tony meeting his family here that's been in America for a couple of years. Well, I, something I've been kind of stewing over, just the idea that, that there is more to Tony Montana than just this Cuban immigrant who's just trying to make a name for himself. The fact that he has a family here and he's got a sister and a mother who clearly his mother is, is very much in, in, the, in the idea that if you're going to come to America, you need to do, you know, you have a... As Jeremy mentioned earlier, you know, a, a wholesome job, an honest job to make a decent living to be all the best you can be. But when her son shows up and Tony comes back, Tony, I, I guess, in a sense, is really kind of seeking validation from his family. Like, you know, I finally kind of did it, I guess, in, in an ex to a certain extent, we all can kind of come to that conclusion at, at some point with our lives after we've moved out and gotten to a point of certain, you know, success. And we come back and, you know, want to, what we want to show our parents that we, you know, we didn't fail. We did make it. But the thing is, it, his his mother in this case, you know, she she's broken her back in a sense to, to make an honest living. And for her son to come in and kind of just kind of throw it in her face like, yeah, I did all this in a really roundabout way and I'm not being honest about it. But, you know, moms know best. Moms can tell when their children are lying and she knows full well that her kid's full of shit. So her calling him on his shit and for him to react the way he did, not like he's reacted before in the movie, again, does show that there is more to Tony Montana as a person. Because obviously he's not going to go out of his way and flip out and have that short fuse moment with his mother, the person who gave him life. So there is a semblance of 
what's the right word I'm looking for here? Um, common sense, human decency to Tony Montana when he's not all hyped up on cocaine. I mean, that, that, that is a very narrow window when he's not all hopped up on cocaine. <laughs> right. Right. But I, I, I see where you're coming from there. Like, yeah, like she is, his mother is the only person who can make him feel like the smallest person in the room. And it is a nice contrast to see that and how his mother, like she came here and she's doing the, she works for her living and she has no problem with it. She has no qualms with like that. She came here to work and that's like, that's to make her the best life out of her, out of it. And that's exactly what she's doing. And her son comes in and is like, Hey, I'm taking the easy route by being a criminal and look how successful I am. And it does kind of, corrupt um his sister's uh i guess wants and needs of what she wants out of life because when he when he's literally thrown out by his mother his sister goes out to console him about it and that's when tony gives her the money says hey to take treat yourself and everything like that like don't work yourself to death and be miserable and that's when kind of the turn happens in gina's life with him going back in there and i i just happened i really love Mary Elizabeth's uh, performance here, especially where she goes from, like the wide-eyed person, can't believe she's her seeing her brother in first time in five years, and how it kind of develops later on, and how their their relationship becomes very fractured. Um, but it's also another thing that happens here that Manny now has eyes for Gina, and Tony wants none of that. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh... You know, just to kind of piggyback on what Philip was saying, you know, it is really great to see this character like he's seeking validation from somebody. And that's not something that we would think this character would be doing. I mean, he hasn't done it so far. So for him to actually go to his mom's house and say, hey, look what I have, you know, aren't you proud of me? And then the fact that she kind of throws it in his face that he's doing everything the wrong way, it's. I mean, we can't relate to it in you know, the sense that, you know, for what Tony's doing. But, you know, I think everybody has that sense or that moment in their life where you do go to most likely your parents, but that person that you want that validation from or that, you know, pat on the back like, hey, you finally did it. You did a great job. And to see Tony do that. Um, yeah, it's just a very. It, it really brings him down to a human level, I think, for sure. I agree. Like He just wants to hear from a parent, like, I'm proud of you, what you're doing, you're doing the right thing. I mean, so many people want that kind of validation out of somebody right there. And when he doesn't get that, he just tries to just dive into the work. And then eventually he is sent to Bolivia with Omar to meet with the cocaine kingpin Alejandro Sosa to discuss a new deal and between Lopez and Sosa. Now, Omar just wants to buy what he was there to do, that just one sale and that's it. However, Sosa turns the table and is like, hey, when we have this as an ongoing thing that you agree to buy this amount of my, of my product and you make this much amount of money in return and it'd just be a cool symbiotic relationship which tony is all for however omar is not resulting in them arguing in front of their new clients but what really happens that is apparently omar 
was a criminal informant, and by the results of that, he's thrown out of a helicopter and his neck is broken. <laughs> Not before a very funny exchange between him and Tony where they both just go, fuck you, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> we have nothing else to say. That, that, that's all you can just say. Just say it back and forth. <laughs> Just another moment where you could just cut the tension with a knife uh, between him and Omar and just you couldn't that that would be one of those scenes where, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that gif of uh, Aaron Paul, I think, from Breaking Bad, where he's sitting at the table, just like drinking water awkwardly as he's sitting at the table. (laughs) That would be that would be me sitting at that table. I mean, it's just you can just I mean, Omar is just a despicable person. I think we can all agree on that. But, like, man, I felt for him in that moment. Like, man, I, he was just like, God, why did I have to bring this guy with me <laughs> to this meeting? Because uh, you knew he, was, he wasn't he was going to keep his mouth shut because uh, he never does. And, yeah, I mean, we get this great scene, which I'm, I, I'm sure maybe Tim could uh, talk about a little bit, how they pulled off the uh, him falling out of the helicopter I mean, that scene is just, whew. The way that shot, like, you feel that. You could feel that neck snap. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is a stuntman jumping out of a helicopter with that around his neck. That's not a dummy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And (laughs) which, like, that's why the Oscars should be giving out stuntman awards. Anyway, um... (laughs) It is just like, and then when you cut to the close-up, like, that is F. Murray Abraham being hanged by a crane um, for that close-up shot by him right there. And he's not just being, like, standing on an apple box or anything. Like, he's no, he's actually being hung a few feet in the air for that shot. It, it is that, like, it's probably one of those days on set, like, all right, no joking around. This is going to be a very scary, a potentially very scary day, so we got to be on our A-game, and it's probably you yell action, you hold your breath until we get the thumbs up that everything's cool. But Now, was Omar an informant? How do you guys feel about that? Or do you feel like that was just Sosa throwing his weight around? I feel like it could go either way, but I, I kind of lean towards more Omar being an informant. I mean, it kind of tracks given how he, it, it, like you mentioned earlier, you wondered if he was the one who set up the double cross against Tony initially. And then here, if Sosa has as much communication and outreach as he does, then it really wouldn't surprise me that Omar would wind up being an informant and why he winds up getting done in the way he is done, you know. So to leave Tony to be the one to finish off the deal... Again, it's like the beginning of that snowball effect of watching Pacino inevitably create his own snowball of demise. Mm-hmm. Well, you almost wonder if Omar was threatened by Tony in the beginning because he felt like this is a guy who could blow his cover, you know, or expose him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, if we agree on the fact that he did set him up earlier on, and the, set the Columbia deal to go awry, then I think it's far more possible that he was an informant and he was out for his own self-interest, and so his execution was warranted. i just also like to add Paul Shinar and Mark Margolis as Shadow and Sosa. <laughs> Top-notch. 
Oh yeah, I mean like they're they're fantastic in this here, and like this brings so much gravitas. Like Mark Margolis doesn't say a word in this movie, but like you feel his presence right there, and. Paul Chenier as Sosa, like he's just so smooth, and it's just like wow, like yeah, he you, like he could talk you into anything. Like yes, I do need to buy buy 150 kilos of your product every month. I don't know how I'm gonna get the money, uh, but I'm gonna do it. Well, I think what's great about the Sosa character too, this is a guy that we never really see him do anything in terms of physically harm anybody. But you are terrified of this character, of what he's, what you feel like he's capable of doing, and I think that's that speaks to the actor playing the character. I mean, you just get that uneasy vibe with this character from the get go. Absolutely, and especially when we hear that kind of news report later on in the movie, we realize oh how big his empire is, mm-hmm. and so. Tony returns to the States having agreed to this elaborate deal with Sosa, much to the dismay of Lopez, who wants nothing to do with that. And so in the ensuing argument, the kind of working relationship between uh, Lopez and Montana falls apart, and he tells him to stall the deal and don't do this. And so Montana agrees, he and Manny leave, and that's kind of like the end of their partnership. This is also the same time where Montana professes his love for Elvira and wants him to run away with him instead of being with Lopez. And Frank's not going to be around forever. Don't worry about it. And this is when things start to really go sideways in Tony's life when it comes to having uh, structure and friendships. Okay, boss. <laughs> I am the boss. Yeah, you're the boss. Just so condescending as he leaves the room there. <laughs> Which room I would I would get lost in because I couldn't find the goddamn door handle because it's just a vista, the entire wall including the door. And I'm like, mm-hmm. where's the door handle? Oh, here it is. Uh, I, I would get lost in that room right there. I would be the idiot. Like, uh, how do I get out of here? Uh, but how do you feel about this, Jeremy? About their friendship coming to an end? I mean, you can tell, and, you know, obviously this gets paid off later. You can tell that Frank is, he's done with Tony. Like, he can tell that he can't trust him. You know, he is, um, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the scene where we get Frank say that great line where he talks about, you know, the guys that make it that last in this business are the ones that fly straight and low-key, the ones that, you know, end up burning out are the ones that, you know, kind of go for, I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but the ones that, you know, basically don't know when to stop, you know, they, they just want more and more and more. Um, and I always, I always like that scene because it's just a perfect um, metaphor for the Tony Montana character, you know, had he just flew straight, you know, and, and not been so greedy you know, this is somebody, you know, regardless of the business he's in, like he could have probably led a pretty successful, I guess, happy life, you know, for, I guess, being in the drug business. But since he, you know, was so consumed by greed and it was nothing was ever enough, like it's ends up being his downfall, you know, and I thought that was a great exchange between him and Frank. And you can just hear the... <laughs> 
the unsure, you know, questioning, you know, in Frank's voice when he says, I am still the boss. Like, you could just hear it in his voice that he's not even sure he's still the boss, uh, at least over Tony. Um, you can already tell that he's he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to do something about this guy. Yeah, like, he has no conviction behind it. Like, he's like... Rather than saying, demanding, like, he's not, like, declaring it, it's almost like a question. He's like, I'm the boss. And and Tony's like, yeah, you're the boss. Wink. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Exactly. Um, how are you, Phil? How do you feel about this ending of friendship and then Tony trying to make the moves on Elvira? I guess I, I think you guys, I'm going to paraphrase what you guys kind of said. I mean, it, it really is kind of the nice beginning of the end so to speak because if his exchange with Sosa was like the peak of his foundation of who he was then this is where you see that foundation start to maybe crack a little bit because now that him and Frank are no longer working together and he ignorantly professes himself to Elvira it really is kind of the beginning again you know like the beginning of the end and again, you know, the, the cinematography between the two scenes, again, it, it's it's you go to that really closed in space, that that closed space with that backdrop, that door you can't find that Tim mentioned uh, in that really dark room and that exchange between him and Frank and Frank trying to hold on to whatever power he thinks he has in that moment by letting Tony know, like, yeah, I'm still the boss. And Tony lets him know. Sure you are. OK. It was like that moment in Avengers Endgame where it was <laughs> Thor and Star Lord. I'm the you captain. You're gonna bring that up. <laughs> it's what it's what came to mind for me. Yeah, we uh, all know who's the captain here. That stare that Thor gives Star Lord right there just like it just lingers a moment too long. Like, yeah, we know what's gonna happen here. Maybe. Uh, different movie, different universe, different time. Anyway, and it, it like oh, go on. I was just going to say, like, the, their whole, this sequence between him and, and Michelle Pfeiffer, Elvira, like, it, it's it's a little touching in, in certain regards. It's also bright. It's outside. You get a nice view of Mi- the Miami Beach behind them. But, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, my God. That's how I feel about that sequence, gentlemen. I'm like, I would love to be in Miami right now, but then I realized, no, I don't want to be in the state of Florida. I'm like, no, not without a mask. Um, Only if it's with Michelle Pfeiffer in the beach in 1983 that's it otherwise well no. we kind of touched on it but it's uh, the cinematography in this thing is so great because at least and maybe this is just my naive you know mind because my view of what miami looks like is what i see in the movies but like i would never have guessed that most of this movie was shot in california because this Same. looks like miami to me i mean they do a really good job of of you know dressing it up to look like Miami at least what I presume you know assumed Miami would look like in the 80s I mean it's just it until I watched the making of like I never would have guessed that they shot this in California mostly yeah between like the six months shooting like only like two weeks of it was actually done in Miami mm-hmm. um but, I mean, you could have seen you could have seen them sharing sets with Don Johnson on Miami Vice for this movie. I mean, it's that's how much it looks like Miami to me. Tearing ass around in a Ferrari. <laughs> uh, shared life. universe. Shared universe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just because we don't see him in it doesn't mean he's not there. That's how this exactly. works. 
Um, yeah, it, it is something here, and it's something that we 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 keep bringing up Breaking Bad on there because we've had cast members um, and, and just certain moments that remind us of that show. I just realized is like how Vince Gilligan pitched the show is that we're going to take Mr. Rogers and we're going to turn him into Scarface. Mm -hmm. And that's how he pitched the show to AMC. And you think of it, like you think of Walter White's character and how he wants to enjoy himself while making meth. And then you think of Gene Carlo Esposito's character and how he lives his life where Gene Carlo Esposito lives it much more like how Frank does. Where he flies straight, mm-hmm. doesn't create too much trouble, and he has a successful entrepreneurship because of it. But Walter White's far more like Tony Montana, where he wants to revel in his gains done by dealing drugs. Not only that, he he purposefully makes it known that he made the Heisenberg blue meth. He purposefully paints a target on himself, but since he's also Walter White, he's not necessarily painting the target on himself. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and it makes yeah, he, absolute he, total sense. He's not he's not happy with the rewards. He wants the glory as well. Yep. And I I feel like that's that's the similarity between him and Tony too. Is Tony is a guy he's not satisfied with being the number two guy. He wants you know when he goes to Frank with this deal. He was probably expecting Frank to be like, oh, this is great. Like, you just closed this amazing deal. And to get the opposite reaction, like, you know, Tony wants, he wants the glory. He wants everybody to know who he is. I mean, obviously, I mean, as you get further along, I mean, (laughs) you know, he's got Montana Realty. He's got, like, his initials on everything. I mean, he is all about the flash and all about the, uh, you know, self-promotion you know definitely and so one night that's when <clears throat> tony manny goes to the babylon club where tony sees gina dancing with some guy and he does not take kindly to it but at the same time he tries to make moves on elvira again where things become very heated between he and frank along with being pressured by a police officer who knows kind of dark secrets of his criminal past Resulting in an assassination attempt by some uh, um, some goons who tried to kill him there at the Babylon Club. And all hell breaks loose as the old cliche happens, or goes, I should say. Uh, Jeremy, how do you feel about this part of the movie? I still have nightmares of that thing that is supposed to be a clown in the Babylon Club. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> what, I don't know I if don't Oliver Stone... I, yeah, I don't know if Oliver Stone was on coke when he came up with that character, but what is that? <laughs> I, I, like he's dancing to a Frank Sinatra song or a Dean Martin song at first. Like I guess it's supposed to be a funhouse mirror of a Rat Pack character. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's not to not to take away from all the other cool stuff in the scene, but that is the thing that always sticks out <laughs> to me when I see the scene. And you see Tony watching him like he's even not even sure what he's watching. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is a great scene, you know, especially with all the mirrors and the machine guns going off. And 
I mean, it's again testament to the cinematography because I and I'm sure maybe if somebody was to dissect it, I don't know how you don't have a camera in any of these scenes uh, in this club with all the mirrors and stuff like we talked about earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, this is kind of the turning point. At least this is this kind of moves us over to because this movie really has kind of three acts. Um, you know, and this this is kind of helps us go into the the bookend for this part of the movie. Yeah, I absolutely agree. How how about you, Phil? Philip, how do you feel about this? So number one, I still don't see the clown. Number two, <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, again, this this sequence kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the this the. The backdrop also kind of being a reflection of what's about to go down. Like the, as I mentioned earlier, the Babylon Five, the Babylon Club being like vibrant, wild, unpredictable. That's exactly how this entire sequence goes down. It isn't. You, you have absolutely no idea how the conversation is going to go with Bernstein, the the DEA agent. His conversation with Elvira leads to a confrontation with 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 Frank, which inevitably leads to a big busting shootout. So. I, I, if there was a knob to turn up the level of insanity in this sequence, it went from a seven to an eleven. That's the best way I can probably say it. Huh. Why don't you make ten allowed and have all these go to ten? These go to eleven. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, it is. Hey, Tony, hey Tony, get your own girl. Yeah, like <laughs> seriously, like I, I understand, like. He wants the things he can't have, and he thinks if he accumulates things, it will make his life better. Hence the extravagance and everything. Hence, like, well, that's why he pines after Elvira. And, um, okay, as this is something that's bothered me. As somebody who's a non-drinker, going who's gone to many bars and like just to be social like that, I was like to say, I've never drank a milk at a bar. I've never gone to that degree. I'm just going to have a glass of milk. Maybe it was a white Russian. I don't know. But does having Bernstein having a glass of milk there when he's uh, putting the screws to Tony right there is a sight to behold. <laughs> Can I just say it's kind of ironic for Manny to tell Tony, don't go after the boss's daughter or the bo- boss's girlfriend and then Manny subsequently kind of turns around and flirts around with Tony's sister. Is, is that ironic? Am I am I am I right to think that way? Yeah, I mean, you until you kind of throw that wrench in the chain, you want to say Manny is like Tony's Jiminy Cricket. You know, he's kind of his conscious. That's true. Yeah, That's a good but point. yeah, when you throw in the whole thing where he you know starts getting feelings for his sister, um, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's kind of a tough contradiction there. Yeah, like, do as I say, not as I do. Like, that's kind of the vibe about (laughs) it. Um, Like, I do, like, we do have a cameo of Richard Belzer as the Babylon MC when he was still a comedian and before he was, like, a real actor. Um, And that's why, (laughs) like, I found an old, that's why I went down a rabbit hole of, um, Richard Belzer stand-ups from the late 70s, and I found that clip of the Midnight Special with him being introduced by Chevy Chase, and I sent that photo to you, uh, uh, Jeremy, and uh, and Guy. Uh, 
And if you want to know a funny story about Richard Belzer, just look up Richard Belzer and Hulk Hogan. That's all I have to say. Um, and the ensuing lawsuit that came out of it. Uh, so yeah, like, all right. Yeah, uh, that's the suspense I'll leave you. Like, it involves muscles, cocaine, and a and a villa. That's all I'll say. Okay. Um, and so these assassins come in and they open fire in the middle of the Babylon Gate, killing the clown in quotations, uh, unquotations, the clown. Um, and that's something that Jerry has wanted to do for years now. Just put a couple, a couple rounds into that thing so it'll stop haunting his nightmares. Um, but since there's so many people running around, I do like that Tony is smart. Like, hey, the only people standing still are probably the gunmen. And he takes out their kneecaps. And I love how the one, like, in movie theater, in movies logic, like, ah, I'm dying, firing a gun, I'm still going to hold down the trigger. Resulting in the overhead lamps to come crash down the other assassin, killing him. And so that's when Tony realizes it was obviously Frank that did this, gathers Manny and um, Chi-Chi, and they, my favorite scene in the movie, when they finally show up at Frank's place and say, like, yeah, we're going to, kill you but we're going to take our time doing it and we're going to build out the tension here while Bernstein's there as well as Ernie one of uh, uh, Frank's uh, subordinates uh, how do you feel about this Jeremy when Frank goes from thinking he's in control to blubbering and begging for his life at the end I love the setup that Tony does here where he had just just I think to because I think he he already knew that Frank was behind it, but just to get Frank kind of just that, I think that just that confirmation to have the guy call Frank and say, we fucked up, he got away, and just just so he could see Frank's reaction to that phone call. Because obviously the reaction that Frank would have given if he wasn't behind it, he would have been like, you know, who is this? Like, what are you talking about? You know, but the fact that Frank responds the way he does just gives tony that confirmation that yeah he was the one that that put the hit out on me i think just made just made that everything more satisfying to tony and yeah i mean to see you see frank pretty much graveling for his life you know pleading with tony not to kill him and then the fact that tony doesn't even shoot him he has manny kill him uh i love it and then, you know, on top of that, you get the whole thing with uh, with what's-his-name. You know, Tony pretty much called him out that he's not even a real cop and just shooting him. You know, it's just it's a great scene. I, I just love everything about it. And then just the cherry on top of asking her, hey, you want a job? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love this whole scene. Like I said, I... It, I love the brilliance of Tony's, you know, scheme there to to really get that full confirmation that Frank was behind it. I thought that was that was really good. Nice. What about you, Philip? Well, Frank's death is a direct indication of the very first thing he ever told Tony. Don't underestimate the other guys you greet, and that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly why he's on the floor groveling for his life until Manny puts a bullet in him. I mean you're not. You're, you weren't wrong when you made the comparison of Giancarlo Esposito's character, uh, Guy Fring, to Frank. It's it's very much. They're almost one and the same. You know, Frank spent a lot of his career flying pretty straight, solo, under the ground, pretty you know, close to the chest, I guess. Whereas Tony's very boisterous, and loud, 
and obnoxious in his, in his business endeavors. So, honestly, Frank, the, the, the reaction of Frank and, and seeing Tony's reaction of how Frank reacts was more than enough to solidify just how far down the rabbit hole Tony's gone at this point. And, you know, again, I, I'm just I'm just going to go back to what I said. You know, it, it's just a perfect example of how he broke his own rule without even realizing it by underestimating just how much of a greedy son of a bitch Tony Montana really is. Manolo, shoot that piece of shit. <laughs> you want a job? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it is a... Because you're on pins and needles the entire time you're in there. And that's why I love the the takes are a little bit longer. Like, the shots play out. Like, you know, like... It's like you see the train coming, but your foot's stuck. And you're like, ah, oh, shit, I gotta get out of here before the train comes hits me. And that's exactly what this scene is. And we've seen Frank as being, like, this extravagant person. And to see him go from that to a groveling... Um, person is is pretty remarkable and and something that mel said earlier in the babylon club scene is a is a, a saying that i take to heart like you got to get more out of your life every day above ground's a good day and he's absolutely correct um <laughs> too bad it was his last day and tony kills him <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put, let me point out too how much I love the set piece here. Is I love that Miami skyline background behind Tony in this scene. I used to have a poster in my in my room of him sitting at the table with the gun, with that behind him, and that's just an iconic shot, in my opinion. Oh yeah, for sure. Like him in the the busted up suit and the the pistol with the suppressor on it. Yeah, yeah, it is like yeah. it, it is iconic. You're absolutely correct, and. And I, I love it. It's like the low punctuation at the end, like they're like, of like, is he gonna kill Ernie? Will he? Won't he? Will he? Won't he? You want a job, Ernie? And Ernie's like, sure, Tony. And I love it. And Gigi's like, Thanks. hey, you got a job, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he put, brings up the Jack Daniels to take a sip, and it's rattling against his pink, uh, his pinky finger, uh, his pinky ring. I'm like, yeah, I would be shitting bricks too if I was you. Well, it makes me think too. I- I know I touched on it earlier, but I mean, you don't really see Tony kill anybody who doesn't sort of double cross him or do him wrong. I mean, even he says to Frank, like, you know, I, you know, yeah, I may, I did stuff on my own, but I never, you know, he, I don't think he ever had plans to really like kill Frank unless Frank, you know, tried to cross him, you know, I, and you see that, I mean, he could have easily just shot Ernie and been done with that, too. But he's, that's just not the kind of person he is. I mean, all the people he kills in this movie, I mean, are people who done him wrong or, or double-crossed him, you know, on his way to the top, you know. Ernie didn't put the hit on him. Why would Ernie get hurt? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but that's that's my point. Like, he, he, he didn't have a reason to kill Ernie. He right. wasn't a part of it, you know. So he, he kills Mel, he kills Frank, and that's... That was all he. That's all he planned on doing. So, exactly. That's all it wrote. And so, Tony goes and collects Elvira's, indicating that Frank's dead. You're coming with me. Um, we get to see the blimp that says the world is yours, and that's when like Tony's like, "Hey, I kind of like the sound of that." And then 
with if it's an eighties movie, this mean this means we need a motherfucking montage. <laughs> and we gotta push it to when the did, limit. When did when did Rocky three come out? Rocky three uh, let me <laughs> let me double check this. Luckily I have a uh uh eighty two, a year before. I feel like the guy that put that those montages together, they must have called him up and said, we need a montage for this movie. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah, I mean, so, like, yeah, we see Montana's meteoric rise to power between him and his partnership with Sosa, where he goes from just being a gangster but to the gangster in Miami with a giant mansion. We got, he goes full Michael Jackson because he's got his own private tiger. Um, he finally ma- marries Elvira. He, Gina's got her own salon. We have so many different businesses and money, cash, money flowing in so much that that he can't. The banker can't even rinse that much money, and it is getting set, kind of out of hand. But uh, Jeremy, your feelings of this montage? I mean, the critical eye. You know, if I'm looking at it with a critical eye, I'd say this probably dates the movie more than anything else in this movie because it just feels pure 80s. But I I love it. I, I love the song choice. Uh, I love just the whole montage just showing him, you know, rising to power and how much money he's bringing in. It just sets up so much. You know, it leads us into this next act, you know, of him being on top. And, um, you know, he's even got a pet tiger. You know, which is, I guess, a staple for, I guess, people who have made it. You know, everybody's going to have a pet tiger. Although, after watching, in a post-Tiger King world, I'd beg to differ. But, um, yeah, I mean, you get to see that that scene where he has a tiger in his backyard. He's going to show off to everybody. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great, it's a great fun montage. Like I said, if I'm, if I'm being critical, though, it does date the movie. Uh, but... It, it's a lot of fun. I'm always down for a montage, so. Nice. What about you? About uh, what, How do you feel about this, Philip? I'm going to, I'll just agree with what Jeremy said. It, it's, a, it's a very, very much, it's, it's of its time. I, I'll agree there. It's very much, you know, quick montage of every moment that you would imagine happen once someone of that caliber gets that status of power and money. You know, obviously, if if you were in that much of a position and you were able to get away with it, especially this is 1983. This is before facial recognition technology. This is before smartphones. This is before all of that. So it probably was a lot easier to get away with criminal activity as clearly as Tony Montana is here. I mean, looking at his desk, he's got a golden box filled with lines of cocaine and a silver, not even a spoon, a silver straw. Who has a silver straw? Tony Montana. Why? Because he snorts cocaine out of a silver straw. He's that rich. I don't know nothing about a tiger, though, so. Yeah, he's got his own custom-made um, straw to, to do cocaine from. It is ridiculous. And you're probably right, DJ. I mean, this is probably the most dated thing in here about it is because of the 80s pop uh Song to back a, a montage like that that has been made um, satired so many years, so many times over in the subsequent years, and yeah, like he does go full Tiger King. He gets like a personal tiger here. 
Uh, well, it's it's definitely. I mean, this movie in general, but specifically this scene or this montage, it definitely shows that this movie takes place in the eighties. It's kind of a reflection of the eighties, which was a time of decadence, you know. Um, and this is perfectly reflected in this montage. Like you got, he has a silver straw. Like you guys said, it's like it's just it's greed, it's decadence, and. You know, yeah, we all have a lot of nostalgia for the 80s, but, you know, if you watch a lot of stuff on the 80s, I mean, it was a time of decadence. I mean, it just, that's what it was, you know, and cocaine was the drug of choice because it wasn't cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's now reached a full, he's the top of the mountain right here, and his a impending recession means he's going to have to pay a little bit more on his, uh, his money when it starts to get cleaned up by the bank. And so he decides to go with a new person, Cytobomb, to uh, clean his money. But it's also the same time where Tony starts to push away both Manny and Avira because of his own paranoia and his feelings of godlike nature that he cannot be stopped in any way and anybody who gets in his way which is gonna he's gonna steamroll to the point where Cytobomb is actually a cop and this is a sting operation and he gets caught with millions of dollars of unmarked bills and so he's gonna have to go away from for tax evasion uh jeremy how do you feel about this this kind of turn for montana here well, to quote the notorious B.I.G., "Mo money means mo problems." <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, the, the more money he was bringing in, you know, all, you know, yeah, you know, being on top is is great, but eh, as soon as you're on top, there's plenty of people trying to bring you down. So, um, like we mentioned before, it's just this movie is just a perfect analogy of this rise to power and fall from power. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, he's, he's having to deal with people that he normally wouldn't have had to deal with because of the amount of money he's bringing in now. Like his normal means of money laundering isn't enough anymore. And even though it isn't, it is technically enough because the guy said he could still do it, but he would have to pay more. Like again, like his greed, like, will not, He's not going to give an inch, so he has to seek out other opportunities, um, you know, which open the door to more, you know, possible backstabbing or, you know, in this case, like, you know, the cops, you know, doing a sting on him, you know, it's, and I, again, like the whole scene where he's, where they're counting the money and he says they're a little off, you know, on their counts and it's like, I don't remember how much it was off, but it was like, no, he wants to recount it. Like that's, that's how, that's how much, how greedy this guy is. It's like, yeah, it's a couple thousand off or whatever. And it's like, you got like millions of dollars sitting on the table and it's like, he's worried about, you know, just a couple thousand dollars, even though he's raking in God amount of money every freaking week, you know, it just speaks to just how greedy he's become. Um, and again, it's like, it's not enough. Nothing's enough. I mean, you get some great scenes here where he's, you know, I think the hot tub scene, I think, is in this in this part, uh, which has become used in a lot of hip-hop videos and stuff. Uh, really good set pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a great scene. 
Very nice. What about you, Philip? I just want that hot tub with that TV. I mean, obviously a modernized version of it, but I really just want to sit in a hot tub watching TV with four cameras outside my house. That sounds slick. No, like th- th- this whole sequence is a nice display of Tony's, again, rapid departure into ma- not madness per se, but just chaos, chaos incarnate, because that's that's really what he becomes by the end of this movie. He He becomes his own worst enemy to the point where... He drives away his wife. He drives away Manny to even much further degree, which we will get to, I'm sure. Um, as far as the money, the tax evasion, that again, it, uh, again, it also speaks to him and just how just consumed by power and and money and just how how that really can drive a person to just such a level of it's the right word here. Um, I don't want to use sociopath because that's not it, but it's definitely like in that same kind of caliber, that same kind of egotistical maniac type of mindset where you just constantly have to be in control no matter what. And if it doesn't work out the way that you want it, you're just you're going to battle it whatever way you can until you're done. And that's that's Tony Montana to a T. He just doesn't know how to stop battling everything when it doesn't start working the way he wants it to. Well, and the whole tax evasion thing—it's—it's it's something that took me a while to realize. Uh, but you know, I've I've watched a lot of gangster biographies and docs, you know, um, and obviously in the Untouchables they touch on this. I like that it's—I it, don't know if this was on purpose, but it's a nice nod to the real Scarface, Al Capone, who was brought down by tax evasion. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool to see Tony Montana—he gets. That's how they. That's how they end up getting him. I mean, it's not the climax of the movie, obviously, but you know, the the government end up getting him by doing tax evasion. Right. Right. To quote the Joker, "I'm crazy enough to take on Batman, but the IRS, no, thank you." <laughs> Always comes back to Batman. I mean, well, of course. <laughs> Are you surprised? Are we? Is anybody around here? Does anybody look like a shocked look in their face? Like I can't believe on this show of Batman fans they brought up Batman. You already made an '89 reference earlier. Yeah, uh, that was unintentional. This one was at least <laughs> intentional. That was subconscious right there. Well, you make an '89 reference on I think almost every episode of Anything Goes. Uh, well, I, I usually six, six, usually six references. Six is uh, yeah, good. Six, six, six references per episode. <laughs> Uh, which I literally used that last weekend, like, uh, helping, like, make dinner, and my dad's girlfriend was like, how many eggs should we put in this? And I'm like, uh, six, uh, six is good. Um, uh, <laughs> it literally was, like, I, I fly it wherever I can. Um, and you're right, Jeremy, I think it's, like, maybe $1,300. That's what he was, yeah. like, it, like, <laughs> like, sure, like, I know, like, Rupert Murdoch doesn't spend, like, he spends, like, such a low amount of money every day and that's how he's able to keep his billions like i guess it is a different mindset but like you have millions of dollars right there you're really gonna haggle over thirteen hundred dollars right there but then again none of us have been millionaires so maybe he's doing something i mean i mean looking at my bank account i would over thirteen hundred, but well, yeah. If I had the kind of money he had, I'd, it's easy for me to say uh, no. I'd be like, let's call it a night. <laughs> yeah, like I say, if it's like it's it's haggling over a dollar thirty. Like, yeah, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose sleep over it. But it, 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 I love how it's just like 
Like, he's like, yeah, like, I, I post a $5 million bail like it's nobody's business. And his, his lawyer is like, yeah, you're going to have to do a little bit of time. And it's two things. One, I don't know if this is, like, early in the shoot or a reshoot because Manny's hair, when they're in the office with the lawyer, just looks like a wig. And I'm like, what's going on with Stephen Bauer's hair? I know it's a very minuscule thing to zero in on, but, like, go back and watch that. Look at Stephen Bauer's hair. Stephen Bauer's hair when they're talking to the lawyer, it's a little out of place. And, and I love how it's like, Manny says like, hey, the the prisons here are like hotels compared to Cuba, but Montana will do everything he can not to go back in a cage, including going back to see Sosa and, and do a deal for him where they got this person who is leading a crusade against all the drug dealers around the world, and they need him to go to New York to execute him in front of the United Nations and make a big spectacle of it. But when Montana agrees and goes there, he finds out this person he's going to kill has his family in the car, and then when the car bomb is armed there, and he can't do this. So, Jeremy, how do you feel about this when Montana finally shows his weak spot? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's a great character moment because up to this point, you're you're kind of questioning, like, you know, is there anything this guy won't do to get what he wants? You know, and it, they kind of further seed that here with the whole, you know, he's not even willing to go do a little time for some tax evasion. Like, he's like, no, like, he's he's not willing to do that. You know, he's he feels so entitled, you know, and he throws, now he's throwing his money around. Like, he could, he could like, I think he even says, like, oh, I, you could buy the whole Supreme Court with how much money I'm going to give you. And he's just so full of himself, he doesn't realize that, no, like, it doesn't matter how much money you got. Like, you can't buy your way out of everything. And, you know, him going to Sosa and, you know, pretty much making a deal with the devil in a way, you know, with Sosa, which you could argue he was already pinning himself into a corner anyway before this, but he really pins himself in the corner by making this this deal with Sosa and then when he gets to the point to go through with it, the, you know, I guess make his troubles go away, which it seems like Sosa would have done that because he's in league with, you know, politicians and, you know, a lot of people that could, I guess, get Tony off. Um, this is when Tony's moral conscience comes and rears its head and pretty much uh, really sets him on on the course to his final demise you know and i i love the whole back and forth between him and the shadow and the car about you know just like you think i'm gonna blow up some some mother and her kids you know uh, you think i'm a monster and he's like you know fuck that i don't need that on my conscience like i it's just a great character moment to finally see that you know i mean we kind of saw it a little bit earlier that he does kind of have a soft side and he's not a complete monster but the fact that he's drawing the line in the sand of, yeah, I, this isn't what I do. I don't do this. Like, yeah, I deal drugs, I kill people, but I don't do this. So I think it's a great moment for the character. Very nice. What about you, Philip? 
I don't disagree with anything Jeremy said as far as it being a nice moment for the character, even going to the meeting with Sosa and everyone else, like all the other big wigs that are in his like circle of connection. And then we go from that meeting, which kind of is like a, a, a telltale of Tony and what he needs to do in that. It's like a defining moment, I guess, for him, because in that moment, you already know Tony's so far gone that this probably isn't going to end well for him anyway. But when a little bit later there it's him and Manny and Elvira at the dinner and they just it they just have it out they have it all out right there in front of every wig in Miami and it's I, I feel like that scene in and of itself is 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 a, it's also a contrast to where he is as far as like a, a a mental state because if you think like to where Tony is mentally like he can't trust anybody he doesn't want to talk to Manny he's thrown Elvira practically to the corner so at this point he's probably feeling like he legitimately has nothing left to lose and then when he's faced with the point of like compromising his own moral compass in some weird sense even though he does these dastardly evil things that only for his own beneficial gain but when it comes to taking the life of of a mother and her child only because it's going to benefit the people who have been supplying him for this life for so long it really does kind of come at a at a at an impasse so to speak and only because weirdly enough only because it's not the way he would go about handling business it's not about the fact that he would not kill this person or these people it's about the way that he's going to do it or would do it i think that should be addressed too but that's also not to say like yeah it is a pretty skeevy idea to just blow up a family of people in a, in a car and out as opposed to just you know giving them the mercy I, I don't even I don't even want to sound like I'm talking like a criminal by saying that. It's just like that's how I'm perceiving Tony's mindset, I guess, would be the best way to say it. Well, yeah, I mean, he even you make make a good point because he even says like to the shadow, like, oh, you don't you don't even have the guts like to shoot somebody face to face. You got to hide behind that stuff, you know, hide behind a bomb, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, you know that's the type of person Tony is. Tony's not a person who would, I think even from the get go, I don't think he really liked the bomb idea. That's not really the way he would do it, but you know, he was just going along with it to, you know, for his own self gain, you know, to re resolve his issues. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you bring up a good, the, the dinner scene. I don't, I definitely want to make sure we don't step over that. Like that is, that's a great scene. And you get that great moment with Tony, you know, telling everybody to, say goodnight to the bad guy, like another great moment from this movie. That's iconic. Um, and the stuff he says to Elvira or about Elvira in that scene is just, whoo, mm -hmm. man, you talk about, and yeah, and I don't know if in that scene, is he just like strung out on Coke or is he just drunk or just completely depressed and miserable because he realizes he's gotten to this point where he has to do something that, you know, that he wasn't wanting to do. Like, I don't, he, he, you could just tell he's just feels very defeated in that moment. Mm -hmm. He definitely seems like he's just really shit faced. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, like he definitely was like that when, before he was shot at, went in the Babylon club earlier. So it's not a new thing for him to, to get that smashed. <laughs> um, and to call out a virus saying like, yeah, that she's, 
uh, she's unable to give him a child, and the fact that like he says that oh it's because her womb is so polluted I can't have a kid with her like Jesus Christ dude, <laughs> and like Elvira should kill you right there, and I don't think a jury would convict her if she did that. It, like it's the most mortifying thing that she could probably say, that he could probably say to her in a public space like that, let alone in private, and. Like, it is famous, like, of, of Scarface saying, like, say goodnight to the bad guys. Last time you're going to see a bad guy like me. Like, I even, like, I especially enjoy the line, I always tell the truth, even when I lie. Like, it's so silly, but it's always stuck with me. And the moment of that, it, it, it's so funny. Like, you see him do something that evil, the previous scene, but then have this moment of humanity where he will not compromise and not kill a woman and kids just because he's ordered to. And he goes so far to defend the idea that he kills the shadow and jeopardizing both not only his life, but everybody part of his organization. I love how Ernie and Chi Chi immediately recognize that after he puts a bullet in the shadow's skull and it cuts their close up, like they're two shot and they're just like, ah, oh, shit, we're dead. The Palma was like, go to a two shot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this fucking guy. Uh, we're having a good time right here. This guy decides to be a writer. Uh, some will get it. Some will need an explanation. As our friend Jamie will say. Uh, oh, man. Even the close-up on the kids in the back playing patty cake. That's even just more of like a... Just... Mm. Like... like mm like you can't get more innocent than that. Like, like how could right. you kill those kids like that? It is like, ugh. And well, and can I just say, like, how is it that Tony Montana, a huge, you know, drug lord? Obviously, he's got his hands in other stuff to make him seem legit. But I love how he's at a payphone, and this private helicopter is just landing to pick him up, and nobody is making any. Uh... <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, oh, this guy's getting a private helicopter picking him up. Who's that? You know, that is one thing I, I, I do wish the movie would have addressed a little more is who is Tony Montana in regular society? You know, mm-hmm. to the regular society's eye. You know, we know he's a drug lord, but, you know, he's got all these other businesses. So is he seen as a respected business person? Like we never get to see that side of him. And when you see like him getting picked up by private helicopters and stuff, you got to be like, well, I would be curious what the public thinks of Tony Montana, you know. He's just an entrepreneur that um, he's a big investor. So I think that's what uh, <laughs> that's what he does. That's what he's uh, good at. I mean, like where his wealth came from, that, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> and so... Tony returns to Miami. Elvira's gone as well as Manny. He's disappeared along with Gina. And before he can go out and look for them, this is when he gets a phone call from Sosa. And Tony's doing more and more cocaine as the night goes on. And when Sosa and call, calls uh, Tony out for what he did, and Tony does not take it kindly, and the both of them scream at each other, hang up the phone. And what Tony does is that speakerphone right there. Like, the speaker didn't do anything to deserve that. 
And you slapped around like I owed you money. I have to wonder how much of that was ad-libbed in that scene with Pacino. If he was just going full bore and didn't expect to drop the speaker, like, they just kept shooting, like, I mean, he is just going full, um, you know, what do you call it, the whole, uh, just, uh, method, full method. I mean, he is just, he's gone. (laughs) I'm amazed. I'm amazed he managed to keep that speaker in his hands for as long as he did while saying, Oh, you think you can fuck with me? It's rattling around all over the desk. Yeah, exactly. And, and the fact that he, he does a line of coke before he gets on the phone with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and it, it's not so much a line. It's so much like it's a small little, like, like it's like an anthill. That's what you see. No, it's a rail. It's a giant rail. Is what it is. Oh man, that's why. Like uh, when I, my brother and I would like, we would joke. Like, what are we gonna do tonight? I don't know. We're gonna be bumping rails off a of toothless hooker's asses tonight. That's what we're doing tonight. Tomorrow, <laughs> tonight we go easy. Tomorrow we rage. Uh, and that's always the example I use. Like, oh, we're just gonna be bumping rails tonight. That's what we're doing. Um. <clears throat> And so, yeah, Sosa has had enough of Tony. Tony goes to look for Gina and goes to his mother and find out where she is. But she's moved into a fancy neighborhood, the Coconut Grove, and finally blows up at his mother. His mother calls him out. Tony goes to the address that he was given by her and finds out who the hell is Gina being shacken up with. Turns out it's Manny. And he thereby kills Manny because he touched his sister. While hyped up on Coke. Yeah. Like the, and... the whole the whole third act of this movie is just on Coke. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no other way of describing it. And so Jeremy, how do you feel about this? The final betrayal uh in Tony's life? Well, it's it's interesting because it's it's a moment of betrayal that you see on Tony's face when he sees that Manny is with his sister, but then immediately after he shoots Manny and kills him, there's just this switch that happens where he realizes and you see it further later on, but you he realizes he he fucked up by killing Manny because Manny in this moment Manny I don't know if he could have saved him in this what's about to happen but Manny was his right hand man he was the guy that was always there for Tony regardless and you know Tony you know throughout the movie after Frank's death you know Manny becomes a further you know him and Tony become further and further apart because Tony's just pushing everybody away as he's rising to the top and I think in that moment when he kills Manny he realizes you know, Manny was really his only true friend throughout this whole movie. Uh, all the other people that he has working with him are nothing compared to what Manny was. So you can just see it in his face. And even as he gets back to the mansion that, you know, even though as hopped up on coke as he is in that moment, you can tell that he can, he knows he fucked up by killing Manny. Definitely. Yeah. Watch- oh, go on. I was just going to say watching Gina run down the stairs. Manny's just dying you see the blood splatter. Like Pacino's just standing there over him, like he's having a deep thought. Like, oh shit, did I really just do that? Mm-hmm. 
and I, you could argue that cocaine's probably in a tribute to that, but I, I also kind of feel like that that was probably like the last kind of straw for him, given everything that's gone on. Kind of like what I was getting at earlier, the fact that Manny was like, uh, or, or he, you know, he tells Manny, you know, pretty early on, don't touch my sister, while <clears throat> Manny also tells Tony, you know, like, um, oh, well, man. <sighs> I lost my train of thought, guys. I'm sorry. Well, stop doing so much cocaine, and you won't lose your thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just oh, like, sorry. like, like uh, of all the conversations oh, sorry, you get to have, guys. like some nasal drip right here. This is the one podcast that it'd be, it'd be questionable. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but no, I, I see what you're saying there. Where like he he gave him, like one rule: don't do that. And picking back off of also what you're saying that Manny's his friend. Like, yeah, he works with him. He works with him. Everybody else works for Tony. And everybody else mm-hmm. is kind of like, is very sycophantic about it. It's like, it's like, I think Manny would have said like, yeah, can you stop doing so much coke right now? Because it's really messed us up right here where everybody else like Ernie and Chichi just kind of throw up their hands like, what are you going to do? And <sighs> it is heartbreaking to see Gina react to Manny being killed. And it says like, we just got married and we wanted to surprise you, like, oh my god, like, yeah, like, it's really messed up here. And so they grab Gina, and they drag her back to the mansion, where an entire hit squad is is invading the mansion grounds and killing off goons left and right. Um, and this is when it gets really weird here, because now that Gina's kind of, like, probably on so many downers right now, and kind of stoned, throws himself at Tony because, yeah, like, he Tony's starting to have some really weird feelings towards Gina because doesn't allow everybody else to touch her, so that's why it's just like, does he want to have sex with her? It is very strange. He also snorts a giant mountain of coke off his desk, too. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it, like it literally is a mountain on his desk. It- it, it's like looking at Mount Shasta if I were a, an hour away from where I am right hmm. now. Yeah, I mean, another another iconic shot is him just sitting at the table with mm-hmm. the mounds of Coke in front of him. Um, I feel like I should bring this up. I, I was just kind of looking because I was curious as we were talking about the cocaine use in this movie. Apparently in the movie, it's never been confirmed, but supposedly they used powdered milk as a stand-in, which was, I guess, kind of common as a cocaine stand-in for movies. But apparently uh, Pacino has said that after making this movie, his nose has never been the same after making this movie. So he said he doesn't know what it did to his nasal passages, but his nose has never been the same after making this movie. Okay. All that. (laughs) Yeah. I'd imagine so. Maybe that explains it. Maybe like his, his, because the nasal cavity attacked connected to your throat. Maybe that, Messed up his voice afterwards. Who knows? I mean, it's got. What if it was the? What if it was the silver? The the silver straw. I I mean, like, (laughs) cocaine does put like dime-sized holes in your nose. You do too much of it, so. Uh, I mean, I would be curious. Was he actually? I mean, I guess he was actually snorting something in some of these scenes, just I guess to be as method as possible, but. I mean, he had to have, if it was, if he actually had stuff going up in his nose, I mean. <laughs> Whether it be, like, dried milk or baby powder, like, it, it's gotta hurt. It's gotta, not, it's probably not fun. Like, the drip probably sucks to deal with that, like, doing take after take after take of it. 
But yeah, like, how, yeah. like, how do you feel about this uh, last scene between Gina and Tony there, uh, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is kind of awkward and kind of uh, kind of icky. <laughs> and I love Tony's reaction. It's almost like sobering. It's almost sobering Tony up a little bit because you can tell he's like, you know, he he's either coming down off his high or something, even though he did just do more coke. Um <laughs> Because he's, you know, reacting differently. You could tell he has, you know, if this was a completely sober Tony, you could tell he would be very remorseful right now. Um, and I, we do get that in a few moments. But, you know, you could tell, like I said, he he knows that he's, he's messed up and he's backed into a corner that he doesn't know how to get out of. Because the one person that he realizes that he can always trust, he, he killed him. Um for, you know, I don't think a legitimate reason. I don't think anybody thinks for a legitimate reason, even though I, you know, he was with his sister. Like, yeah, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. But, you know, like I said, Manny was the one guy that he could always turn to and trust. And, you know, he died at his hand. So he's, yeah, he's on the edge right now. Definitely. And Philip. From the moment I remember watching this the very first time again, you know, however long ago I did, I, I this last sequence where she comes in with the gun, she's obviously all on something, some kind of downer. She's stoned, some such. I don't, I don't really know, but like this, this whole bit, I did, I it kind of caught me off guard because I don't remember it that much. So watching dude come in through the window, blow her away, having Tony feel remorseful, but also like the, the like you guys were mentioning, the weird not quite incestual displays of affection, but like the, 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 the displays of affection that tip that line. Uh-huh. It is a little jarring. I'll admit that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not one way or the other about the sequence. I mean, it's, it's really just a, a, another like last little bit of, of a knife deepening into Tony's subconscious, kind of just cementing the fact that he's not going to be able to recover from this at all. Mm. And everything around him is literally going to straight shit. I think in hindsight, I mean, her reaction is kind of validated with, you know, his behavior towards people trying to get with her. But her brother just (laughs) killed her husband. So, yeah, Yeah. no, no matter which way you can slice it. I mean, her coming at him and approaching him with the whole like, well, you know, if nobody else is good enough for me, I guess you want me. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's icky and uneasy, regardless of how you slice it. But I think it's a validated point and validated moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, who knew <clears throat> this scene here would predict Pornhub trends that's going on today? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it is rather strange. Um, yeah, it, no, I I think Gina would have an OnlyFans now. Pornhub's so last year. You know, you're probably that's right. Why, that's, why, that's why Brendan's always on it, right? Nah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> He's not the only fan. Anyway. Ba-dum-tsh. Ooh! <laughs> oh, man. Like, you thought you would get away through, you get an entire episode without me dropping a pun, but the war of the Kambay Matumbo. No, no, no. Not today. Um... Wow, I just I made a punt and a sports reference right there. Some like I know somebody's popping for that. Um, yeah, it is very uncomfortable there, and you're right, it is sobering for Tony at least a little bit. And it's, it's 
as a, an audience, you're like, oh, this is really strange. Luckily, it doesn't go much further because an assassin does come in and unload pretty much half of his magazine into Gina, unfortunately, causing Tony to throw him off the balcony and then empty the rest of the gun into the dude in, uh, in the pool below. That's when Tony realizes, oh, do you know what? I probably should have been paying attention to the giant 1984 monitors I should have had right there next to me, showing that my place was being invaded. Um, and I do enjoy, like, the story because the famous, like, scene here upcoming, the moment where he fires the grenade launcher says, say hello to my little friend, that apparently uh, Pacino burnt his hand on the device when that happened. And so he was out of commission for like, a couple weeks. And so in the meantime, De Palma had a lot of time to do with, to shoot without a star. And so that's why we had so much coverage of the bad guys coming in and being shot at from Tony's perspective, like from his POV, even though he's not in the same shot. And during that time, Steven Spielberg came down to set and there's even photos of Spielberg hanging out with De Palma on this mansion set. And Steven said like, Hey, like maybe you could put a camera here or there and everything. And like, there's like one shot, like really low angle outside the mansion as the guys come in from both sides of the frame and run in. Like, yeah, that's a Spielberg shot right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Tony tries to reconcile with Gina's corpse to no avail because Gina is a corpse. Um, but that's when we get the most part of the most famous moment in the entire movie here when Tony decides to grab his M16 with a grenade launcher attachment, his banana mag- banana clip magazines, and says, say hello to my little friend, blows the door open, and proceeds to, to have a one-man war against the Sosa's men, and puts up a pretty good fight, but doesn't ultimately does not ex- succeed. Uh, Jeremy, your final thoughts, like your, your feelings on the ending here. Uh, well, first, I, I love the moment between him and Gina's corpse. Um, and I have it this last time I rewatched it. I wanted to watch it with subtitles because I, I all these years watching it, I, I could swear there's a moment where he's talking to where he says um, that either he's coming or he's, you know, something about like, you know, he almost like in the in his words, he recognizes that he's going to die tonight. So he's going to be with her soon. I swear there's a line of dialogue that he whispers to her in that moment, but you can't really hear it. Uh, but I want to watch it with subtitles to kind of see what his actual dialogue was. But you get the feeling that he's like, he knows that he's not going to make it out of here alive. So he's literally goes out in a blaze of glory. And my God, I mean, this is like, this is like cinema, like, <laughs> blockbuster cinema at its finest right here in this climax i mean just pacino just i mean it's it's definitely going to be in contention for my, my favorite pacino scenes ever in any movie just him just going at it with all these drug drug henchmen you know whatever you want to call them and the just that whole set piece which you got to see it earlier in the movie just that the way that whole thing is set up with the 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 fountain thing at the bottom of the stairs you have the you know the stairway on each side it's just it's just perfect for this whole climax you know him just unloading on these guys as they're coming up the steps on both sides and you know the fact that he's so hopped up on coke that he can't even feel himself getting shot i mean he just keeps going uh to the point that 
you know, even after he loses his gun, he's just getting shot at. And he just just keeps running his mouth constantly. I mean, it's just uh, I just love it. It's just great cinema. Very nice. And you, Philip? Outside of the wonky last words he delivers to Gina, his one-man reign of terror on all of these other people coming in to kill him, it's pretty astonishing. It's, again, a testament to the cinematography between the smoke effects, the firing of all the guns, Tony Montana just flipping out, slurring, you know, just giving out... expletive after expletive just yelling at these people up until homeboy comes out from behind caps him with a shotgun in the back and he falls into the pool and says the world is yours I don't know if that's better symmetry for how to end the story of Tony Montana other than you know you you literally end a pool of your own blood above a, 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 a statue of the world with the words that say the world is yours after you've literally in a sense conquered your own world yeah I, I mean I love how he builds himself into such a fury that he is, like, speaking in tongues in the very last moments of his life. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't even understand what the hell he's saying. Like, it literally is just, like, the like, he's always going full Arnold, like, trying to struggle for oxygen right there. As he gets killed by an Arnold-like killer. Yeah, like a Terminator <laughs> behind him pretty much does kill him. Basically. Um... <laughs> uh... <laughs> There's so many times I've wanted to say, like, who do you think you're fucking with? I'm Tony Montana. You fuck with me, you fuck with the best. Um, I've never had enough <laughs> cojones enough to say that into any scenario. Yeah, it, it is really astounding here. Where like, it really is the blaze of glory that he is going out in. And if you go into somebody's house and they have a statue that says the world is yours around there above a pool, you might want to say, like, mm, I might want to get out of here. This might be a bad scenario. It's probably going to end terribly for somebody. It might be me. Um, but it is iconic to see him just mow down wave after wave after the guy. Like, it does turn to a video game moment there. I mean, that's the reason why the video game sequel opens with this scene here. But instead of being executed by the assassin behind you, you can kill him and escape. Like, I really want to hook up my PS2 and play the game right now because I'm having so much fun talking about the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great, like, what if, like you said, pseudo-sequel, you know? It's like, because I remember when that game came out, I was like, oh, so you play the movie. And it's when we got it, we started playing. We're like, oh, like, this is kind of cool. Like, well, what if he had escaped? And then you have to kind of rebuild your empire, go after Sosa and all that stuff. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great idea, whoever came up with it. Definitely. Yeah, and so Tony is killed, and we have the big crane shot. The movie is dedicated to Howard Hawks, the director, and Ben Hecht, the writer of the original Scarface, and that's how it ends. And so, uh, Jeremy, final thoughts on Scarface. Uh, like I said, I mean, it's, I, I think I've said this in the past, this movie always kind of fights for my number one spot for favorite gangster movie, uh, between this and Goodfellas. Um, it's just, uh, there's something about this movie. It just, all the pieces work for me and I know it doesn't work for everybody. I know there's things that, you know, some of even our closest friends don't like about it. Um, I love the era that it decided to play in, in the 80s, the setting in Miami, 
the color palette, which we didn't talk a whole lot about, but just the color palette of all these different settings and stuff is just really cool. It, there's something very larger than life and kind of over the top with a lot of it, and I think that's what I really love about it. It's not it's not your typical gangster movie, and I think that's one of the things that really works for me with it. Um, even though I'm a huge fan of the genre, even if they all kind of play in the same sandbox. Um, I love that this one is a little different and it's, um, it's my favorite Pacino performance. Um, I know there's plenty of other ones that he probably could have won Oscars for, you know, the Godfather obviously, but in terms of favorites, like this is my favorite Pacino performance. I think it's just, it's, it's my favorite character that he's ever created. Um, and it's, it's such a huge part of, you know, People may not put it on a pedestal with The Godfather in terms of, like, storytelling, performances, you know, grand cinema, the way The Godfather is is perceived, um, which is completely valid. Uh, but where it does sit with The Godfather, I think, is is its impact on our pop culture. I mean, you can't talk to anybody and mentioned Scarface without somebody quoting something from this movie or recognizing the imagery and scenes from this movie. Um, it's obviously had a huge influence on the hip hop culture. I mean, you can't look at any hip hop artist without seeing some kind of Scarface reference. Um, there's even a great album out there. I'd recommend people check out the Def Jam release where they literally had artists take songs and parts of the score from the Scarface soundtrack and score and they kind of made songs to it and there's actually clips from the movie in between tracks and stuff but i would definitely check that out if you're a huge scarface fan um but yeah i mean i i love this movie it's one that i always will stop on if it's on and it's one that i revisit often so uh yeah it's just if you haven't checked it out i mean do yourself a favor check it out it's a Got a l- nice long runtime, but in my opinion, I think it moves pretty quick. Uh, I know we didn't really touch on that, but I I think it moves pretty quick in terms of the narrative and the story and stuff. So, fantastic. And Philip, Jeremy, I don't know how you came to the conclusion a three hour movie has a really fast narrative, but <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of disagree with that. I, not to say that I think the movie's bad or anything. I'm just, I'm just go. I'll just go ahead and just kind of reiterate what I said earlier. Gangster movies really aren't my thing. It's not that I don't like them. It's just something I don't visit much often, if at all. But this movie in particular, it 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 has it has a lot of good more than I, than I think it doesn't. And I can appreciate it for a lot of the things that it has given. Like you know, obviously my love for Grand Theft Auto Vice City, or just even making fun of Pacino. Well, I'm not really making fun of Pacino, but like getting to to to, to act as if <laughs> the, the, just the idea of Pacino as Tony Montana, just that idea is just fun to talk about, play with, imitate, you know, the the whole nine. But overall, like I, it's a movie I can I I really enjoy and I can I can appreciate and I like, but it's one I definitely don't feel compelled to revisit more often than not, if that makes any sense. But overall, you know, it's. I enjoy it for what it is, definitely. Well, my thing with the runtime is probably because of how much I love the movie. It's, probably. There's not really... 
there's definitely if I got critical, there's definitely some fat that I could I could sit down and trim off of it. But I I just enjoy every single frame of the movie. So mm-hmm. where do I disconnect Philip from the call? Where do I get to do this? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> I guess I I didn't know I was going to be the odd one out. This no, one, no, but, no, uh, no. Right. Of course not. I'm never going to be smart. Somebody that has a different opinion on this movie. Um, yeah, it, it is. Like it's part of the AFI's like top ten like greatest gangster movies ever made. It's influenced so much media outside of it. It's kind of, it's it's really remarkable and very hard to take it all in. Whether it be from hip hop to video games and just pop culture in general. Like how many people say say hello to my little friend? Like how many times has that been parodied in movies and TV shows after this movie? It's ridiculous, and it, it's kind of curious where. Like, you think of Brian De Palma, even though this was not the biggest hit of his career, it's probably his most impactful movie, even though people could argue he's made better movies, whether it be Carrie or Dress to Kill or Blowout or The Untouchables. But I think, like, he's going to be remembered for this movie because it's such a touchstone moment. And I find that really remarkable here because, like, this was like a this was a studio gig. It was not a personal picture. Like, yeah, his heart is in it, but like he would definitely go back and forth between like one for you, one for me kind of thing. Same thing with the Untouchables. Like the Untouchables, like that was a studio gig, so he can do his own personal stuff. And it's just curious, like he's going to be remembered most from like this or the Untouchables the most. And even though it was just a studio gig to him, that you can feel his DNA is throughout this movie. That we've given, it got us, it was given such a memorable performance from Al Pacino right there, even if it did kind of mess up his nasal uh, faculties. It's something to behold right there. Like, yes, the runtime is a little long there, and there are times like, yeah, you could probably speed this up a little bit here, resulting like, I probably bust this out maybe once a year, where like Goodfellas, like, which was like a similar runtime, it's like a two and a half hours, but. I think that movie is far more better paced in, in compared to Scarface. That's something I watch. I can watch multiple times a year because of how fast it is. But that just ex- just highlights the difference between De Palma and Scorsese as filmmakers. Where this is like, all right, I'm gonna have to do this. Like Scorsese, like yeah, like most of the movies, like I can watch more than once and a year, and it'd be fine. But De Palma, like yeah, it's a little different. Um. But I absolutely adore this movie. It is fantastic in my eyes. It's a great score. It's a great soundtrack, whether it be the pop hits outside of Giorgio Moroto's score. It's a beautiful looking movie. It, it just literally pops off the screen because it's so colorful. And yeah, I really enjoy it. I hope if people have not checked it out recently, go back and check it out again. Or if you've never seen it before, check it out. I guess my seal of approval. Now, Jeremy, where can people find you on social media and your podcast? Uh, you can find me over at my podcast, Dark Tower Radio, which is an all Stephen King podcast. Uh, I just released a new episode today, uh, which was me and um, fellow real, real fan uh, and host of his own podcast, uh, Matt Spalding, where we, we talked about the uh, – the dropped Dark Tower series that was going to be on Amazon. Uh, we got to talk in depth about that because the showrunner actually came out on another podcast and talked about his whole vision and what he was wanting to do with it. So we got to 
talk about that. But um, any other time, it's it's you know it's even if you're not specifically a Dark Tower fan, it's uh, all Stephen King. So we talk all about his books, movie adaptations, things like that. So if that's something you're into, come check us out. Wonderful. And what about you, Philip? Well, Tim, thanks for having me on Anything Goes Again. I really appreciate it. It's always a blast talking to you and talking to Jeremy again as well. Gotta, I really got to find some time to have you both back, come back to Superhero Stress, my podcast, for anyone wondering. Um, if you all want to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Vero, uh, you can, Unfiltered, U-N-P-H-I-L-T-E-R-E-D-D-D. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter as well, just at Superhero Stress. It's just a podcast about superheroes, Marvel Mostly DC, but a lot of we do talk Marvel there too as well. We did just drop an episode of our top ten favorite performances in superhero genre. So if anyone's curious, they're more than welcome to check that out too. Awesome. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two, my Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve. I may not be as active as I usually am right now because it's just Trying to be as away from social media as much as possible. My YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions. So you can go to youtube.com slash through the lens productions, through as if you're going through a tunnel or through a window, where all my short films are up there. Um, my latest short film, Run of the Basement, is up there. I got a new one coming very soon. And the other podcast I do, please rewind the RF4 RM Retro Show, where it's myself, Guy Milks, and Jamie Drewley, as well as both. Uh, guest spots have happened by both Jeremy and Philip here. Uh, we talk about movies kind of like how we do it here, but it would be more about anniversaries, and it's a very similar format. And that's for you can find that show and all the other shows are part of the Real Fans Network at rf4rm.com. And so, yeah, if you enjoy this episode and want to get more about me talking about movies, go to there. Uh, Jeremy and Philip, thank you for taking time at night to talk Scarface with me. Didn't you also, real quick, didn't you just release an episode on Please Rewind? Yeah, I literally today dropped an episode where we talked about Total Recall. Yeah, I have that downloaded. I can't wait to listen to that. Well, thank you for downloading. Get your ass to Mars. Exactly. And I got, <laughs> Get your ass to Mars. <laughs> and I got another recording of Anything Goes in a couple of days between uh, a few other real fans. I can't wait to do that. So we got two episodes from this show coming very soon. Nice. Yep, and so I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode. Uh, come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture, and we'll speak to you soon.